This is Tim Benal of BenalofAmerica.com with another edition of BOA Audio Season 4. Coming at you a little bit later once again this week, a combination of rustiness from the just-finished spring break, me being inundated with off-site work, and, uh, you know, trying to enjoy the summertime weather a little bit. But I'm happy to report our schedule is going to be wide open towards the end of this week, and I'm going to really lock in and try and take care of a lot of business here on the BOAN, so hopefully we can start getting the program out to you a little bit earlier in the week as we have done in the past. Hopefully you don't mind too much. I'd rather take an extra day to put the episode out and put out the best stuff we've got than rush it out and end up not happy with what we've produced. To that end, you definitely want to check out the official BOA Twitter feed, twitter.com slash Benal, B-I-N-N-A-L-L, for a whole host of updates on the progress of the show as it unfolds. That'll give you the most up-to-date news on BOA Audio. I'm really enjoying the Twitter service, and uh, I didn't think I was going to like it, but I really uh, have been having a great time on Twitter, and I hope a lot of folks check out our Twitter feed Twitter.com slash Benal, B-I-N-N-A-L-L, check it out. Now that we've taken care of that business, let's preview this week's program. It is going to be an awesome edition of the show. Our guest is a truly spellbinding esoteric researcher, Tracy Twyman. She is an intense researcher and an intense writer and just an amazingly thoughtful investigator of the unknown. Given the wide range of topics that Tracy has researched, I knew it was going to be tough to really pin her down on one thing, so the notes pretty much go out the window after a few minutes, and it turns into a classic BOA Audio jam session where we just let the conversation unfold and take us where it wants to go. As such, even giving you a little preview here is going to be tough, but let me sort of provide you with a thumbnail look at what we'll be delving into here during this two-hour conversation. In the first half, We're going to talk about Tracy's remarkable career as an author and researcher and how other researchers have responded to her tremendous output of quality material in such a short period of time. Then we're going to get into a lot of economic discussion. She's going to give us her detailed and informed perspective on the present state of the economy, why she thinks things are looking particularly grim for the future, and what she sees as the best way to fix it. Plus, we're going to find out maybe if someone was behind this big economic crisis. You know, maybe this was some kind of organized effort by nefarious forces. Tracy will tell us what she thinks about that. In the latter half of this conversation, we're going to talk about a whole host of esoteric matters, a veritable paranormal trail mix, starting with the moon-based calendar and Tracy's theory on how Earth's orbit may have been very different in ancient times. We're going to cover both the 9-11 Truth Movement and the 9-11 event and get Tracy's take on both of those aspects of the infamous terror attack. We're also going to find out about Tracy's 2006 
run-in with Islamic extremists, both hilarious and frightening story there. We're going to hear her thoughts on the UFO phenomenon and her chilling warnings about the paranormal practice of channeling. And, of course, tons and tons more. As you can see, I just scratched the surface there. It is a very thorough conversation. Freewheeling, for sure. Frightening at times, but looking back on it, having listened to it this past weekend when I was putting this all together, I was really uh, surprised by just the sheer amount of laughs in the interview. So even though things do sound kind of frightening and grim throughout the conversation, we do try to pepper it up a little bit with a few laughs here and there. Eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. That seems to be the policy with this episode. For those of you who are unfamiliar with Tracy Twyman, allow me to provide a little background on her. Tracy Twyman has been writing about alternative history and the occult for 14 years. She is the author of the following books, The Merovingian Mythos, Solomon's Treasure, and Mind Control Sex Slaves and the CIA. She's also the former editor of Dagobert's Revenge magazine, a journal of esoteric history that was published from 1996 to 2003. In 2006, her website made national news when it was banned by the Supreme Court of Pakistan on charges of blasphemy. And she's presently spearheading an all-new website, LibertyCapPress.com, aimed at informing people about the emerging police state and financial crisis. You can check that out at www.LibertyCapPress.com, all one word, LibertyCapPress.com. Tracy's doing some fine work over there at Liberty Cap Press. Check that out. Finally, one note here before we dive into the show, I'm going to give you a fair warning. We did have a slight bit of technical difficulties during the first 10 minutes or so of the interview. Some, I don't know exactly how you'd call it, just some crackling sounds. Not too bad. I kind of was annoyed by it, but I persevered, and I hope the folks listening at home will too. That little problem wraps up after about 10 minutes. It does come back from time to time, but it does not sustain itself. It'll just sort of pop in every now and again, and ultimately goes away completely as we get to about halfway through the interview. It's really not that big a deal. It's just sort of a minor annoyance, but I want to give everybody a heads up here and let them know. Hopefully you won't even notice it or barely notice it once you get into the flow of the conversation, but as I said, I want to give everybody a heads up and fair warning that there's a tad bit of technical difficulties here during this interview. And now, without any further ado, let's rock and roll. This interview was recorded on May 7th, 2009. Tracy Twyman joins us for a financial and esoteric jam session on BOA Audio Season 4. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another edition of Banal of America Audio. We have a very cool guest here on the line for this week's episode. She is a hardcore researcher of just all sorts of occult and esoteric stuff. And, and really, to be honest with you, uh, she's one of the first guests or one of the few guests that I've had where I'm just hugely intimidated about this interview because I, I feel like I'm in way over my head on a lot of this stuff. But uh, I've been always fascinated by her interviews and her books and her articles. So uh, when we finally connected on Facebook, uh, I knew it was time to bring her on the show and, you know, showcase her stuff to the BOA Audio listening audience. She is Tracy Twyman, and she is the author of a number of amazing books. Let me run down the list for you here. Mind Control, Sex Slaves, and the CIA. Solomon's Treasure, The Magic and Mystery of America's Money, and The Merovingian Mythos and the Mystery of Rennes-le-Chateau. 
Tracy, welcome to Banal of America Audio. Go easy on me here. Uh, I'm doing my best uh, <laughs> on this heady discussion of esoteric matters. Oh, you're doing a good job so far. Thanks very much for having me. <laughs> oh, it's great to have you. I'm really excited. And like I said, I've enjoyed all your interviews and all your stuff, so I'm looking forward to getting a chance to talk to you about all this different stuff. And I know that you've been swamped with appearances regarding the mind control sex slaves and the CIA book, so we're going to try and take it off that course and give you a breather for a change here in the spring of 2009. So you don't okay. have to keep talking about the same thing you've been talking about every appearance <laughs> since the book came out. Yeah, thanks. That's good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, uh, I mean, yeah, I've uh, I talked about it a lot. I think I've said just about everything I can possibly say about it right now. But um, basically, just so your listeners know, that was a book about um, an alleged CIA project that called Project Monarch that supposedly was involved in creating, yes, mind-controlled sex slaves for use in um, operations where they would uh, try to compromise people in positions of power that the CIA wanted to control for one reason or another. So they'd set them up with a, uh, a woman or a child, some uh, a mind-controlled sex slave to seduce that person, and then they'd get it on camera, they'd record it, and then they could uh, control that person through blackmail after that. That's uh, a thumbnail sketch of what that book's about. Yeah, so people should check that out. And uh, we'll touch on it maybe at the end here briefly, but uh, like I said... Uh we don't want to go over already worn ground here that you've talked about a lot on other shows and stuff like that. And since this is the first time we've had you, there's a whole host of different stuff we can talk about. And the first thing we should do, of course, is the bio background. You know, who is Tracy Twyman? How did you get interested in all this esoteric stuff? And how long have you been doing this research? Because I know you're a fairly prominent researcher in the field, especially in the realm of, like I said, this occult and esoteric stuff that a lot of people, you know, they just can't dive into it because it's just so amazing and your research is so thorough i'm really i'm just blown away by it like i said earlier i'm i'm just uh intimidated as hell by, <laughs> by this interview but i'm looking forward to getting some answers to some of these questions and stuff thank you um well my interest in the occult i guess started um i was about 12 or 13 years old and started reading uh you know lovecraft and then after that that led me to alistair crowley and and then i met someone who told me all about Freemasonry and its influence on governments. And that's when I got really interested in, like, secret societies and, uh, you know, their influence on the world history um, behind the scenes. And so I think I'm 30 years old now. Um, oh, wow. That was, uh, you know, <laughs> that was a while ago. Um, but I've been doing this, yeah, since I was a kid. I started writing about conspiracy theories for my college newspaper when I was 16. I was going to a uh, community college at the time. Wait a minute, you and, went to college uh, at 16? Yeah, because I, well, here's the thing, like, <laughs> this is related to the occult, okay? Um, when I was a, in, a, in high school, me and my friends were all into goth, and we dressed, you know, in black clothes, and we, we were all interested in the occult, and we were trading books amongst one another. And uh, this got us bad reputation in school, and it, it was a small town. Um, and all of a sudden, the, the uh, school started investigating me, having like... Oh, boy. Yeah, they brought my parents in for 
a conference, and, you know, it was basically they were saying, because your daughter is weird, she's probably doing drugs, she's probably, you know, in a gang or something. I don't know. Oh, boy. <laughs> uh, and so my parents just said, this is stupid, and they pulled me out of school. Um, and they sent me to the community college instead, and that's where I finished my high school, and I got started on my bachelor's degree and stuff. But um, and while I was there, I was working for the school paper, um, and my editor actually allowed me to have a bi-monthly long column about, you know, whatever I wanted to write about. And I started getting interested in, like, the, uh, you know, the theory about maybe that AIDS was uh, started deliberately by eugenicists. I started writing about the New World Order, and uh, I learned about the Federal Reserve, which was really um, just a, a really important thing in my life. It, it, I, I learned about it. I wrote an article about it. I took an economics course because I couldn't believe that this was real, um, which basically what I was learning that, uh, you know, the Federal Reserve is creating money out of nothing and then charging us to use it, basically, <laughs> so that uh, over time all of the, the real wealth gets aggregated in, in uh, the hands of a very small oligarchy and everyone else is just holding debt. Um, that's a thumbnail sketch of what I learned about the Federal Reserve, and I was just like, I can't believe this is real. So I took an ec economics course in uh, school, and... Uh, it was like I learned all about how the uh, economy works, and there was nothing in there that contradicted what I had learned from the conspiracy theorists about the Federal Reserve. I did really well in that course. My professor actually told me that at one point he called me aside after my first uh, essay that I wrote. He said he thought that I had plagiarized it. He said, you didn't write this yourself, did you? <laughs> and oh, I, wow. It's like, yeah, oh, come on, I'm a writer. You know, I know how to write. And, uh, and I actually had to show him some of my articles from the paper before he believed that I had written this. And, uh, you know, then he told me that I was the best student he had ever had and that it was the best, oh, wow. some of the best uh, writing on economics he had ever seen. And I was really amazed, you know, and I ended up, that was the only economics course I ever took, and I ended up studying, like, film and stuff after that. But I think, you know, that gave me the courage, at least, to realize that I, I know what I'm talking about, about this stuff. It's, economics is so complicated, and most people don't even try to wrap their heads around it. But um, after hearing from my professor that the things I was writing in my articles were true, uh, you know, that, <laughs> yeah. that really helped. And so I didn't write about that stuff for a long while. I ended up graduating, and, uh, and, oh, and I started Dagobert's Revenge which is this magazine about esoterica. I uh, put out my first issue when I was 18. It was like basically um, photocopied pages, and I distributed it for free. And it was just meant to be fun. You know, it was, uh, it was like a, a performance art. Yeah. Um, I, I had learned about the Holy Blood, Holy Grail topic. Uh, I read it when I was 17, and I... And I and, uh, it, as you and your listeners probably know some of this stuff, basically the theory of that book is that um, there's this bloodline, a uh, royal bloodline in Europe that can al allegedly be traced back to Jesus. You have to believe the theory that Jesus married Mary Magdalene and, uh, and then they fathered children and that the Merovingian bloodline in France, that was the, uh, uh, the first dynasty of kings in France, the theory goes that they were actually descendants of Jesus, and thus all, also all the other royal families that they intermarried with throughout history. So 
According to Holy Blood, Holy Grail, there's there's this bloodline and uh, there's a a secret society somewhat related to Freemasonry called Priory of Zion that uh, has been sort of protecting the interests of this dynasty. And it was hinted in the book that they were plotting to sort of uh, bring them back into power. It was kind of a neo-monarchist movement. And uh, they interviewed uh, a representative of this organization, uh, Priory of Zion. His name was... uh, Pierre Plantard, and he had actually been putting out these weird little magazines, self-published uh, on behalf of the Priory of Zion, and they had all these weird uh, messages, kind of coded messages and pictures in them, um, revealing the secrets of the Priory of Zion. Okay. And uh, I kind of wanted to copy that. You know, I thought that was such a neat idea. I, I, won, I wanted to put out my own magazine in a similar vein and just make people think that I was a, you know, a representative of the Priory of Zion. I wanted them to think that this was something put out by a real secret society. And that's the way Dag- Dagobert's revenge was at first. Dagobert was a, one of the Merovingian kings. We named it after him. And as time went on, I started writing full-length articles for this magazine. We started actually, instead of it being a photocopy, and we got uh, offset printers we got Tower Records to distribute it international, or yeah, internationally. Nice. Throughout the United States, and then in Canada and a few other places where they had stores, um, we had a couple of other small distributors too. And so, it, it became this real thing. And we had uh, advertisers and um, got some other writers. And I was very seriously pursuing this uh, research into the the Grail bloodline, the Priory of Zion, and also this. Um, mystery in France of this location kind of out in the country in southern France called Rennes-le-Chateau. Uh, it's a very small village where there's a lot of, um, the, the Priory of Zion had put out a lot of uh, information hinting that there was some sort of treasure buried there that would blow the whole uh, story of Jesus and his bloodline wide open. So I started studying that as well and, and uh, pursuing that mystery in the magazine. And then... Um, Eventually, the magazine went away, but I wrote a full-length book about it, which I guess you have now, The Merovingian Mythos. Mm-hmm. And uh, in, in my research, I ended up tracing this whole mystery back way further than uh, Jesus and Mary Magdalene. I asked myself, well, if Jesus did indeed have descendants, you know, then he's not an ethereal being, really. <laughs> yeah. Um, and it's... And, he didn't die on the cross, according to this theory. Um, so it's, it, you wonder, what is the significance, really, of Jesus in the eyes of this bloodline? Why would they look to him as, you know, being the person that makes their bloodline, you know, legitimate or holy or something? Yeah. It's got to go back further than that. And I uh, I just amassed a, an, uh, an amount of um, evidence. I wouldn't call it evidence. <laughs> I don't know if you would call it evidence. Uh it was more like, because I don't know if there really is a bloodline of Jesus or if Jesus even existed or any of these other things. I'm I'm basically just trying to interpret what was the Priory of Zion trying to say with all of this uh, information that they were putting out, all of these hints. And then the, they basically were saying that there were artists throughout history that were, were uh, clued into the mystery as well. And sometimes when you look at certain pieces of art, you can find uh, clues as to the nature of this mystery. So I don't know if this is, you know, historically accurate or not. In other words, is there really um, the treasure of Rennes-le-Chateau that I was uh, 
envisioning. I'm just saying that this is what they're saying. The, the, yeah. This is the the hint uh, that the Priory of Zion is trying to put out. They're alluding to something, and all the there's several writers now. There's like at least a hundred uh, writers out there writing wow. about the subject, and they're all trying to interpret that. What is the Priory of Zion saying? And what I came up with is that they're alluding to much more ancient mysteries. They're alluding to something having going all the way back to. Um, megalithic times, you know, pre, uh, prehistoric times, mm-hmm. antediluvian times, and it all goes back to the same thing, the Nephilim. It has to do with uh, th- this alleged um, uh, interbreeding between yeah. angels and humans, which is in the Bible alluded to. It's also in a lot of other uh, ancient texts. Well, it, you know, you can find it in uh, Judeo-Christian apocrypha easily, but then if you look at the myths of other cultures like the Greeks or the Sumerians, you find that they're basically telling the same story of gods or angels coming down from heaven, breeding with humans, and this is key, creating uh, royal bloodlines mm-hmm. um, that are descended from them. So in my mind, it's, uh, it just all came together. It's like, what meaning in modern times could a mystical royal royal bloodline possibly have? But if we're talking about a, a royal bloodline that goes back to beings that are greater than human, you know, then that's, uh, that's significant. And especially in, in um, interpreting it in a Judeo-Christian mold, if we're talking about fallen angels uh, in the Bible and in the, the book of Enoch and some of these other apocryphal texts, these are the fa- fallen angels. These are Satan's warriors, basically. This is what the war in heaven was really all about, was about the angels coming down from heaven and breeding with humans against the will of God. And that was the whole cause of the flood in the Bible. And it says so in in Genesis 6, but it's like, uh, you know, people sort of forget that, that it was all about this hybrid race that was created when angels bred with humans. And that's what God was trying to get rid of in the story when uh, when he created the flood to wipe the earth clean again. It wasn't because humans were bad and they were you know, having premarital sex or something. Right. It, was, it was specifically because of this. Yeah. So that's what the, bo- the book is about. Um, it's exploring not only the mystery of Rinne-le-Chateau and Priory of Zion, but really um, the whole of Western esoterica in terms of this uh, bloodline going back to the angels. And uh, I just, I found it, you know, once you, once you put things into that perspective, a lot of things fall into place that don't make sense. Yeah. Now you see why I was intimidated, folks. This is some hardcore stuff already. I don't even know uh, where to begin. I'm just completely blown away. And that, that's, just the, that's just the bio part. <laughs> I'm sorry. I really am. <laughs> oh, it's okay. Don't worry about it. I'm having a good time already. I'm completely stunned here by this revelation that you're only 30, to be honest with you, because just with your amazing pedigree of books and your writing style and just given the way the field is, I figured you'd been puttering around here in the esoteric world for like 30 years or something like that. So I'm just stunned because we're the same age. I mean, that's amazing. And <laughs> well, you know, um, yeah, I've been I've been doing this for a long time. Like I said, ever since I was a kid. Mm-hmm. And um, frankly, I feel like I should have uh, accomplished more at this point in my life. It's been like a long time, not counting uh, the Mind Controlled Sex Slaves book. I feel like I've gone way too long without writing a good book. And... Uh, Another thing is, like, I've, you know, I'm on the fringes here, obviously. I'm, I've had to 
self-published that book, basically. I had a, a, a larger publisher, uh, Red Wheel Wiser, was going to publish what was originally Merovingian Mythos. Mm -hmm. But um, the, the co-author ended up um, committing a copyright violation that got oh, us uh, screwed out of that. He, he tried to put the entire text of the book on the Internet and say that he was the only one that wrote it. Oh, boy. <laughs> so we, we lost our contract. I had to rewrite the entire book, which I did within a span of like two months, and then uh, put it out myself. And then there's just been a number of things where I almost had a really big contract and then it fell through at the end. You know, it just keeps happening over and over again to me. Um, and as far as like mainstream writing, trying, if, you know, I've tried to write for newspapers and I've tried to, because I have a degree in film and video, I've tried to get jobs there. Mm -hmm. And it's like, I never fit in anywhere. You know, I don't fit in enough to be part of the team for any, uh, organization that I might try to work for it, um, or even when I, tr I just try to <laughs> ingratiate myself within a certain uh, uh, subculture of the internet, it's impossible because just because I've been so intellectually honest throughout my life and just written in whatever I felt throughout my life, a lot of the people in the esoteric world don't like me because of things I've written about politics. Um, and also really? because of associations I've had with uh, other people that they think are uh, right wing. Um, so, and me, I don't I don't consider myself right wing at all, or uh, you know, and I'm not interested in political parties. But um, what I've found over and over again is I'm just getting a lot of uh, prejudice because people interested in esoterica tend to be left wing, and they think that I'm not one of them. So <laughs> it's very hard for me to get any respect in that realm. And then many times I've tried to uh, go a little bit more mainstream with some of my writing about politics and current events, but I don't fit into any political group either. And when they find out about the stuff I've written about secret societies, you know, it's like... Oh, yeah. Once you once somebody finds out you're into the esoteric, it's like if you try to get a regular job in, in the media or whatever else, it's like it seems like you have a strike against you. I've had that happen to me, so... Yeah, yeah, it, you know, and I I, uh, I try to be really um, rational and fair when I write about everything, including secret societies, and I'm not one of those people that goes around trashing Freemasons. I'm not a Jewish conspiracy theorist, you know, and I'm not even, I don't really advocate overthrowing the government necessarily or anything like that. Uh, I'm not radical, but <laughs> yeah. because I, it, well, say for instance, one of my books was Solomon's Treasure. Yeah. Um, which is about money. I was, I was telling you guys about the Federal Reserve. Well, it's about that, only it's, a, it's a deeper than that. It's about the history of money and especially modern uh, monetary policy, uh, the American dollar, and it's sort of interpreted in an esoteric way. And uh, it, has this, it has the eye in the pyramid on the cover of it. Yeah. Well, everyone assumes that this is just a book about the the symbols on the back of the dollar bill and the Freemasonic conspiracy. Yeah. I think that that is one of the best books I've ever written. It's sold more poorly than any anything else I've written. Oh, wow. And, uh, you know, I got on Coast to Coast talking about it. Other than that, you know, it was very hard to get any traction with it. And I just think that it's like the conspiracy market thought that it was nothing new, that they had already read it which is not true. And then, of course, uh, everyone else in the in the wider market was kind of scared away because they assumed it was a conspiracy theory book. Yeah. 
Anyway, yeah. I don't I don't know how to win, man. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're on this show, so things are turning around already. I'm already feeling like this is going to turn into like a meta interview here, where we sort of smash the fourth wall because I'm I'm just fascinated by by what you're telling me now. To get your thoughts on on the struggles of getting into the field and stuff, it's fascinating. And I don't know, you know. Fuck those guys. That's what I have to say about the people that are, you know, trying to hold you down. That's bullshit because your shit's amazing. Well, thank you. <laughs> you know, yeah, I, I mean, <laughs> your writing is outstanding and, and your research is, like, frighteningly thorough to the point where, like I said, I was I was terrified of doing this interview because I was like, <laughs> I was like, I can't hang. I can't hang with Tracy Twyman. Are you kidding me? So, <laughs> so you know, uh, to the people that are that are, you know, closing their eyes to your stuff, they're missing out huge. Well, thank you. I mean, uh, I don't know. At this point, I'm I'm really at a crossroads here in my in my career. You know, I I don't know what I want to write about next. As far as my next, I mean, I've got several projects that are like eighty, ninety percent finished. I've got several of them, and I just like right now, I'm completely consumed with uh, current events. You know, I I um, have all these other projects on my desk. I'm looking at them right now, but I cannot stop reading the internet, looking at the Drudge Report, looking at the Wall yeah. Street Journal. I just, it's its consuming me because I can't believe what's going on right now. And um, and I guess, you know, in the past, in World War II, for instance, um, in the lead up to World War II, when Europe was being overrun with Nazis and fascists. Yeah. Um, and people who weren't part of that started seeing the police state rising up around them. Yeah, you think that's what's going on now is what you're saying? Absolutely, and it's like you got to figure people who realize what's going on have to stand up and say something before it's too late. It may already be too late. Yeah, see, because I'm of the opinion – we sort of talked about this on my forum too, uh, and I'm not, ta- I'm not putting you in this group, but just like that sort of militant – like we have to fight the new world orderness thing that's going on, or it's yeah. been going on forever, but um, but lately it's picked up since nine eleven. It's just like my attitude, at least like maybe in the last couple of years, and obviously there's stuff that's gone on in my personal life that sort of maybe you know change focus and prioritize different things. But at the same time, it's kind of like you know what, if the new world order is like set on taking things over, I think we're kind of shit out of luck at this point. I just don't think it's going to be possible for. Those of us like you and me who are enlightened to what's going on, we're just not going to be able to get through to like the the mass of sheeple that you know just won't wake up to this stuff. Do you know what I mean? They're just obsessed with like American Idol and stuff. I know, I know how you feel. I mean, the frustration is overwhelming sometimes, um, just with the the ignorance and apathy of the public. And then, you know, that's a, I I heard it broke down the other day that uh, there's like thirty percent of people. I think this comes from Aldous Huxley, and he he made this speech where he he said this: that thirty percent of people have are completely hypnotizable. They they go along with whatever current is blowing in the wind at that right. point. Yeah. Um, and then there's thirty percent of people who are kind of apathetic but capable of changing their mind. And then there's like thirty percent of people who are actually paying attention and. Um, you know, it's, it, elections can totally be swayed by those 30% of people who are just dumb. And, yeah. uh, and I think it's more than 30% at this point. Yeah, yeah. You know? But it's like, I think that um, we can make a generalization that there's a, uh, at least a third of the population can't be helped. You know, you can't, uh, <laughs> yeah. 
there's no point in trying to wake them up. But as far as some of the other people, people that, you know, for instance, voted for this current president. Um, yeah. Uh, Wait a minute. I voted for this current president. <laughs> oh. It's okay. <laughs> no, I think there was uh, obviously some of those people knew there was something wrong and they were trying to fix it. That was the, their best effort at trying to fix it. And it's, a lot of them are realizing that that didn't help at all. There's some hope there. I mean, I'm seeing people wake up and uh, realize what's going on and realize what is important about this country and what we need to keep and protect and how it's being um, threatened right now. But it's like we don't have time to sit around and philosophize, you know? Yeah. It may be too late for the country, but it's never it's never too late to try to save yourself, you know, and your, your family, those around you. Yeah. And that's why I'm hoping that maybe we can do this on a state-by-state -state basis. I'm starting to hear people talking about secession a lot, and not just in Texas, all over the place. Because what they're doing, I told you I know about economics. Mm -hmm. We cannot survive this. It's, there's more than just the police state. It's like what they're doing with the economy, the uh, amount of dollars they're putting into the system. I just don't see any way that we can survive this, and I'm talking about over the next two years. I oh, just boy. do not see... And I'm not the only one. The, in oh, fact, no, I, <laughs> I know you're I, not the only one saying that. The, peop, the people who are, who are uh, on the president's side and on the side of Bernanke and, uh, and Geithner saying that uh, we can make it if we do this, this, and this, for the most part, you know, they're not economists. They're, uh, they're politicians. Yeah. They're the spokesmen. They're lobbyists. And... Uh, the people who actually know about economics, all of them know that uh, this is death to our civilization, really. Because it doesn't just affect us. The whole world is going to be affected by this. Yeah, but I think that to bring it into like an esoteric realm yeah. and how I said, you know, uh, we're shit out of luck anyway if the New World Order wants to, wants to implement its plans. I think this is just part of the plan. Do you know what I mean? I'm sort of bunkering down here and <laughs> hoping I can weather whatever comes through. In the next like five years, but uh, yeah, I mean, I'm ready for anything, but I don't expect it to be good. I guess that's yeah. the, you know what I mean, and I don't expect it to be averted at the last minute by aliens or <laughs> or, or or you know some kind of paradigm shift of of the mainstream people. Do you know what I mean? If anything, it's just going to turn into like a horrible, horrible, bloody conflict, revolution, nightmare scenario. Yeah. I don't see any other way around it. I hate to. <laughs> this, is, this is getting dark now. This interview, but. <laughs> well, no, I mean, what do I... you think? I mean, I mean, I, I want to be hopeful and everything, but at the same time, it's like I got into this thing, like this paranormal thing, like five years ago, and everything they they were talking about start, starting to <laughs> starting to happen, and you know, like I was joking with my friend, and I said. Boy, I wish I had taken all those people seriously that said there was going to be like a global financial collapse like three or four years ago who were saying it, you know, on Coast to Coast and stuff. I was just like, those guys, they're crazy, you know. But now I wish I had <laughs> made better investments and got out at the right time. You know, yeah, I um, I have gone back and forth on this topic in in my own career. Like when I wrote my first Federal Reserve article, I believed what I was reading, and I believed that what we're experiencing now was going to come. And I wrote the article from that perspective. Several years later, when I wrote Solomon's Treasure, um, I tried to be less alarmist. And, I, and it was from reading the history of money that, um, that I saw how, you know, fiat currency 
can work as long as the system keeps going. The the book is all about how money that we have now is fiat currency. It's based on completely on the uh, confidence that Amer- the people have, not just in America but throughout the world, yeah. in the dollar, and uh, that. That's sort of an esoteric concept. It's kind of like alchemy, where alchemy is creating uh, something of value from something that doesn't have value um, instantly. So that's um, that's basically what's going on with our, our current monetary system. We have money. We trade it around. We believe that it means something, and therefore it does. And so at the time that I wrote that, I didn't really think that the bubble was going to pop so soon. I knew that, you know, eventually it probably would or else we would have to change our monetary policy. But I didn't think it was imminent. And I was trying to tell people basically that because the the economy is based on your perceptions of it, for everyone to go around um, trashing the economy constantly yeah. is bad. You know, is that's making it worse. Uh, that's one of the things I was trying to tell people. And when I was on Coast to Coast, you know, the callers who called up Basically, all they wanted to talk about was uh, the impending collapse of the dollar. And at the time, I didn't think it was going to happen. And that's what I said. And, you know, obviously I look like an ass now. But, uh, <laughs> you know, I knew, I, knew I, I was aware of the possibility of it. I just uh, – I was just trying to explain to people the esoteric nature of the dollar, but I wasn't put, casting it in a negative light. I was, <laughs> I was merely saying uh, this is how it works, and it is similar to alchemy. And I was explaining uh, the symbols on the back of the dollar bill that people write conspiracy theories about and say that the, the uh, pyramid represents the New World Order. Um, I was just saying I don't think that, that was the intent at the time, that uh, it was mainly to instill confidence in the dollar at a time when the nature of the dollar was being changed dramatically because uh, the dollar was issued in the 1930s, the dollar that we know now, the paper dollar, and designed with all those symbols on it at that time. It was happening at the exact same time that uh, Roosevelt was removing the gold standard. And uh, the value of the dollar plunged significantly after that. So I think that the whole purpose of designing the dollar the way they did was just to make people believe in the power of the dollar. And that's what all those symbols mean. Like the, the pyramid, all the symbols talk about on, on the back of the dollar bill, they all communicate the message of togetherness for the American people and uh, unity, right? same thing, I guess, yeah. and uh, fertility. Um, not only fertility, but in a larger sense, productivity, you know, plenty. So that's why the dollar bill is green. And the uh, Treasury Department even says that on its website. That's why our money is green. That's why I think um, there's a lot of foliage all over it. You know, when you look at the dollar, it's just covered with, it's green and it's covered with all sorts of foliage. It's kind of like the green man symbol um, in in, uh, Celtic Europe. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah, it's just, it's meant to represent fertility and, you know, in a larger sense, the uh, um, wealth of the nation. And uh, when you look at um, the rest of the dollar, you see this concept of unity um, repeated over and over again. There's uh, the 13 uses of the word one or the number one or unum, the uh, Latin word for one, on the dollar bill. And, uh, you know, it's like obviously that's more than just communicating the denomination of the bill. (laughs) Um, They're saying we are one. Um, and that's also the pyramid on the back is, you know, it's all these bricks put together into one structure. 
um, that also is representing sort of the unity of the country, um, obviously in a hierarch hierarchical manner, um, and with God at the top looking over everything. You have the message on the back that says, uh, in God we trust. That wasn't put there um, originally, but it was added a little bit later. All of this sort of says you need to trust the dollar the same way you trust in God. Yes. You know, put, and that God has placed his um, approval upon the United States and its dollar. So I think that those were the messages on the back of the dollar bill, and it was meant to prop up the value of the dollar at a time when the actual basis of the dollar, the gold, was being pulled out from under it. And at that time, they actually confiscated people's gold. They literally forced people to give up not only gold holdings that they had, you know, in a safe deposit box as far as bricks of gold, but they were literally taking people's jewelry oh, wow. and uh, to put it into the national, you know, Fort Knox. And uh, <laughs> they told people that, they, you know, they paid them for it with dollars, but those dollars plunged in value after that. So all those people got totally screwed. But and even though that was horrible, <laughs> that wasn't the worst thing that ever happened to the dollar because a few years later, we still had this thing called the gold window, which basically said, um, we will give you the dollar's value in gold if you if you want to uh, exchange it, mm -hmm. not not just individuals, but like on a, on a global scale. Because at that time, a little bit later on, we also uh, basically at this thing called Bretton Woods, it was um, agreed upon that the dollar would be the reserve currency of the world. And we agreed to let other nations if they needed to redeem their dollars in gold. Well, in the 1970s, Nixon decided that we weren't going to do that anymore and closed the gold window. And that is when the vast majority of the devaluation of the dollar happened. You think about, you hear your grandpa saying, well, in my day, we could go to a movie for a nickel. And that seems like, you know, so long ago, and the, the value of the dollar has changed so much since then. Yes, but the vast majority of it has happened since the 1970s. Huh. I didn't even realize that until a few days ago. Uh, I mean, <laughs> that's something that had uh, escaped my notice. In the entire time that I was writing that book, I didn't notice that. Oh, wow. Um, so the value of the dollar now is roughly equivalent to the value of one cent in 1913, when the Federal Reserve was created. Oh, man. So what do we need? Like a new dollar, you think? Here's what we need. All right, yeah. Um, you're the economist, quasi-economist. <laughs> so what? Well, how can we get out of this situation without, you know, ending up part of the New World Order or, you know, after a bloody conflict or something? Right, okay. Yeah, yeah bringing this into modern times, we know that uh, the, the uh, Treasury is putting out so m many dollars that the we're going to have hyperinflation soon which basically means the dollar will be worthless. That's why China and many other nations are pulling their dollar uh, reserves and replacing it with um, other things, including the Chi Chinese have put out their own currency that they're backing with metals, including oh, nice. copper, and they want that to be the uh, reserve currency. They're already using it in some countries. They're loaning Mexico some of, some of this money in this uh, form of currency. So it's already there, and it's like... That's the that's the competition for the dollar. That and the euro, I guess. But the euro is fiat currency too. This uh, thing that the Chi Chinese are putting out, you know, it's going to become irresistible because it will be the only uh, international currency that's actually backed with something. Yeah. So regardless of what the president says or or Timothy Geithner says about how they don't want to replace the dollar, they're not going to have any choice. 
So as far as what we as individuals need to do, we're on a state-by-state -state basis. Okay. We need to, first of all, pass this H.R. 1207, which Ron Paul is putting forward, to audit the Fed, audit the Federal Reserve, and explain to the American people, including the idiots in Congress, they also know nothing about economics. It's people sitting on the banking committee don't know how banking works. We need to educate all of them. It's, you know, maybe people don't believe it when, uh, when they read it in a book, but when the Federal Reserve gets audited and it's undeniable that this is a vast money hole where money goes in, real wealth goes in, and worthless paper comes out, that, once that is revealed, you know, yeah. it's like, then people will finally be open to reform of uh, the monetary system. What I would like to see happen is competing currencies. Prior to the Federal Reserve, uh, it was possible to have competing currencies. And the, I think that's what we need. The Federal Reserve is created to uh, prevent banking crises, to prevent a run on the banks, to try to regulate banks, because throughout American history, there's been many times when we've had that, you know, people weren't able to get their money out of the bank, and it was a problem. But the thing is that prior to the Federal Reserve, when those things happened, they could be contained. It might happen in a certain part of the country with a certain set of banks. And it's a problem for those people, sure, but it's not a problem for everyone, necessarily. Um, but now, everything is hooked up together. So, you know, uh, a few people don't pay their mortgages, and all of a sudden, the money that's in your pocket is worthless. And that's yeah. basically what's happened over the course of the past few years. Um, so should we so, switch to the China buck? Well, I think that might end up being the, the international reserve currency as far as um, the currency that large banks have their reserves in. Yeah. It, that, but what I'm talking about is like when the system breaks down, when the system doesn't work anymore, it's better to have a bunch of little systems. Yeah. That some of them fail and some of them don't, rather right. than everything all together. Because what's going to happen right now, if the dollar becomes worthless and we don't have a backup plan, um, people are going to switch to bartering, basically. And it's already happening. I mean, I know tons of people who utilize bartering quite a bit to get the things they need because there's no jobs. But people still have skills and things to offer the world, and there's still people that want to buy them, but maybe they don't have enough money. Yeah. Well. Uh, so <laughs> bartering is already starting. Um, we've already heard of some communities issuing their own currency that can be used within the community at, with participating businesses. And then I've also heard of some municipalities, because they've completely run out of money, they start issuing their own IOUs. Oh, Jesus. They have. I know. I, I believe you. I'm just <laughs> – I'm just, that you, sounds bad. It does sound bad, but this is like we're getting to the point where we have to – because uh, it's basically been predicted, amongst all the other things that have been predicted, that within the next year or two, all of 100% of the municipalities throughout the United States are going to be bankrupt. They will not be able to pay welfare. They won't be able to maintain the roads or have police, and uh, they won't have any credit to uh, to write checks from. But at the same time, you know. We still have all of these resources in the United States that we've always had. We still have people who are capable of, you know, doing skilled jobs. But over the last several decades, we've sent all of the jobs to other countries 
and allowed wages to become stagnant. So, you know, it's like that's another part of uh, why we're not prepared to weather this economic storm. We don't uh, have our manufacturing base operating here in the United States anymore. But I feel like, you know, if enough people woke up, if we had more, if we did have secessions in the United States or just states refusing to implement uh, unconstitutional federal laws um, and then states or, or communities issuing their own currencies, you know, we could we could start to bring things back. One thing I was thinking about today um, with this secessionist movement so many of the unconstitutional laws that are being imposed upon states by the federal government right now are based on the interstate commerce clause. It basically uh, says that anything that's shipped from one state to another, any sort of business done uh, between states, yeah. the federal government can regulate. So what if you did everything within the state? What if the state really did encourage people to manufacture things and sell them within the state, then the feds have nothing to say about that. You'd need a really small state, though, wouldn't you? Like, I mean, that would be kind of tough in, like, Texas or California or something. As far as what would what would be difficult? Like getting your own, just making sure that you don't do any business outside of the state. You know what I mean? It sounds tough. That's all. Yeah. No, not all <laughs> of this is tough. It's, I, yeah. It's like I'm trying to think of survival techniques for for the country when – Everything breaks down. Yeah. Um, because it's like we're at this pivotal point right now where either there's got to be a massive insurrection and resistance or everything on the in the states and in the municipalities is going to break down. When they can't provide their own police, where do you think the police are going to come from, you know? Yeah. It's, uh, well, yeah, I guess it just goes back to the idea of is it too late to stop this and – I just I, I'm just terrified now. <laughs> I'm sorry, but no, it's uh, not your you, fault. But well, then again, you know, some of the people in the military, people that they're training right now to uh, to fire on American civilians in yeah. case of a of a riot. Well, they're assuming that they're actually going to do that. What if they don't? You know, what if they all of this empire is based on people cooperating with it? What yeah. if enough people don't? That's what it all comes down to, and it seems, you know, it may seem um, ridiculous to try to think about how to fight something as huge as the federal government, especially when the federal government has been subsumed into this larger world empire now. I mean, we really do already have the New World Order. The yeah. federal government is part of a global government, and they're just trying to impose it on us now. They've already made that agreement, and it's just... It's a question of are the American people stupid enough to go along with that when they don't have to? There's no requirement for people to go along with this crap. The the only thing that we're required to do is observe the United States Constitution, and it's the federal government has gone so far beyond that. They've completely abrogated their half of the social contract. We're not held by that anymore at all. You know, it's really just a matter of do you want to survive or not? Because I don't think people think that they can cooperate and maybe they'll be saved, you know? <laughs> you yeah. Won't. It's like you cannot collaborate with the Nazis enough to uh, to secure your own position. You are going to be squashed underneath the boot, just like everyone else. 
you know, uh, not, not just you, but this is my... No, no, I know. <laughs> I mean, seriously, um, everyone I've talked to has similar sort of reservations like you do. Uh, this is too big to fight, and people are too stupid, and that's true. I've heard many remarks from uh, overseas commentators saying, we can't believe that the Americans are putting up with this and, uh, you know, calling us, yeah, a nation of sheep incapable of thinking for ourselves and capable of looking after our own self-interest. It's insulting, but it's true mm -hmm. it, now, but maybe maybe we can prove them wrong. Because uh, in, in France and all over Europe, they're rioting, and Iceland completely disintegrated. And, of course, you know, in Europe, it's like whenever they, they have a, um, a protest, it's always give me more. You know, give me more, raise my wages, give me more yeah. welfare. They don't have the same concept of uh, of freedom that we would be fighting for. But still, <laughs> it, it, it is related. What's the uprisings that are happening in Europe are related to the uprising that needs to happen and has started to happen over here because it's all still caused by the same thing, which is an international banking oligarchy that has driven civilization into the ground and uh, completely destroyed it. And the only people that are, that are doing okay right now are them. So, you know, even, even though those are communist uprisings going on basically in Europe, and, you know, we may not feel a lot of solidarity with that, it's still, it's a reaction to the same problem. Yeah. The same uh, empires is uh, taking over and trying to destroy our lives. So, yeah. I don't know. I, I know this is a long interview. I'm sorry. See, you have to, you have to inter interrupt it or else I'll just continue to talk. I know, I know, but I don't like to interrupt, so I just let you roll with it. I, and, and I'm just thinking here as you're talking, too. It's To be honest with you, I'm just a super cynic about this, and I just feel like that, you know, we're looking at some kind of weird New World Order for real happening at some point, especially if America breaks down, but, you know. As a journalist, I cheer for the story, I guess. <laughs> so, so you know, if it happens, hopefully I'll make it, and, and uh, we'll see what happens, I guess. It's freaky stuff. Well, you know, I don't think it's a – this is, I think, the part of the problem. We're all waiting for it to happen. Yeah. You know, it's happening now, and there's nothing to wait for. It's, you know – I mean, I'm, I don't have a job right now, <laughs> so maybe that's why it's easy for me to sit around uh, reading newspaper articles and freaking myself out. And I, I understand that the people that are lucky enough to have a job right now, they're busy, and they, they, they don't get any sleep, and they're being terrorized at work by their bosses and, and coworkers, constantly being threatened that they're going to get fired. Yeah, and a lot of tension like that around, yeah. <laughs> you know, so I I recognize that the American people are losing their minds right now. They they are under too much pressure to be able to think straight at all. Um, but as the as the unemployment rolls grow, and those people aren't going to be able to find other jobs, um, they're not going to have anything to do but riot and you know fight. Yeah, but I stuff. think it's going to turn into one of those like problem reaction solution things, like they've. Now, do you think that this whole collapse was orchestrated to happen, or is this like some kind of accidental turn of events that, you know, that the oligarchy didn't foresee coming? I find that hard to believe that they didn't foresee it. Yeah. I so, think they knew – well, here's – who's the oligarchy? It's like there's so many uh, – there's several different 
factions at least going on. Are they working uh, together or are they uh, in opposition to each other? Well, this is like lost here. <laughs> okay. Are they with each other or against each other or what? I think um, really what's going on here is that uh, it's not like there's one conspiracy, yeah. but there's um, influential corporations and the people that run them want to keep their scheme going for uh, for their own benefit. And so they're pressuring governments to do the things that will help secure their investments, so to, to make sure that um, money and wealth, specifically wealth, keeps flowing in their direction. In addition to that, you have people in government. For instance, this current president seems to have some sort of, uh, it's, you know, it's not a... It's not like he's a banker who's <laughs> making yeah. money off of this. It's an ideology for him mm -hmm. um, and the people behind him of, uh, of socialism. Um, and I think that they are scheming to put into place what they think is a socialist utopia. I think Barack Obama might actually think that, and some of the people around him think that what they're doing is, is going to um, be good for everyone in the end. Yeah, but I think like the being, old like, let it happen thing with 9-11 type of thing. Yeah, but I think they're being played. You know, I think okay. that they don't even realize what it is that they're helping to implement. And, you know, they're just too intellectually lazy to figure it out. And it's, see, it's all short term for the people who are actually uh, in government. They're not thinking about the future. They're thinking about getting reelected yeah. now. Yeah. So the whole they may have known that there was an impending financial collapse coming. But their whole intention for the last several years has just been keep it going, keep it going. And that's what Barack Obama wants to do right now. What he's trying to do with all of this money they're releasing into the system is, you know, he's trying to artificially keep the bubble going. And it may work if he drops the money bomb at the right time. It may work to keep the system going for another couple years. But I don't think it'll last much beyond that. And then he's creating a much larger bubble that's going to pop and create a much bigger catastrophe in the future. I guess the greater point that, like, I was speaking to, um, and to bring it back around to that, is just that if this collapse was orchestrated, then, you know, whatever organization orchestrated it or, or is in favor of it happening, they're going to make sure that it doesn't get fixed either. Do you know what I mean? I have a theory. All right. About who might have done this, that it might indeed have been an act of economic terrorism. Was it George Bush? No. Oh, I know. I just, I just like to blame him for things. I'm still, I'm still on that whole thing. <laughs> okay. No, I'm not uh, interested in that at all. Um, all right. No, it's. Just, uh, I think, I think he's why they canceled the Scrubs. <laughs> <laughs> I think that it might have been wealthy families and. Uh, people in Arabia. <laughs> Whoa. So we're talking like the Dubai folks. That sort of that sort well, of group? I can't of course I have we no don't evidence. Mean specifically. I know you're I know you're banned in Pakistan or something like that, so <laughs> But here I'll Is this tell you why? What, I'll tell you what uh, no, no, okay. that's a that's a longer story. I'll tell you what my uh, evidence is to believe that this may have been um, economic terrorism. By who is there's still a big question mark, but um, I know that the day in September when AIG collapsed and what was the other one? Oh, there were several. Fannie and Freddie and all that? Yes, Fannie and Freddie. 
there was there was basically this one day in September when it was it was kind of like the September 11th of the financial world. You know, yeah. that's when um, the trigger was pulled. Yeah, I remember. And what that. happened? I didn't realize they didn't say at the time what was going on. No one said it on television, and it took several months for someone to finally say it. They said it on a uh, one of those. C-SPAN talk shows, yeah. and how many people watch C-SPAN? I don't know, but I, I managed to catch the clip on YouTube, and as far as I know, it's the only time that anyone's ever admitted what happened. He said, this is a congressman, he said that on that day, that uh, all the congress were, were, they were, were, I don't know, several of them at least, were pulled into a secret meeting with uh, Henry Paulson and Ben Bernanke, and Paulson and Bernanke scared the living crap out of them and uh, told them what to do in no uncertain terms and they went ahead and did it. And the reason, and they, I don't know if you remember, but they came out of that meeting white as ghosts. I mean, I've never, it was scary to me to see that look on Nancy Pelosi's face. Yeah, this was when that whole, uh, like everything went crazy there in, sept in September, right? Yes, and they looked like someone had just been holding a gun on them. Right. And they were like, you know, we got to pass this huge thing or else, you know, the economy is going to go crazy. And then the Dow went down like 600, 700 points or something like because they didn't pass it that day. And it was like, oh, no, the sky's falling situation. Right, right. Okay. Well, here's what Hank Paulson told them. All right. He said that that very day there had been a run on the money market accounts that they noticed hundreds of billions of dollars being pulled out of money market accounts within the span of about two hours. Yeah. And someone said, if it goes on for another two hours, then the entire economy will collapse. Oh, wow. And they shut it down. They shut down the trading that day just to stop that from happening, the trading of money markets. Okay. And this and was then, these guys in the Middle East? Yeah. Wow. Well, who – honestly, who else wants to see the Western world collapse? Because China. Well, okay, it could have been them too, but uh, someone who hates America. I see. I don't think. I don't think Ch China does want to see the the West collapse, but not instantaneously because they have so many investments here. They just want to like absorb us. Yeah, I, I don't. I don't know what the I, what their uh, long term plan is, but I think it's a long term plan. You know, I don't think they. Yeah, they're patient. Exactly. Um, and, you know, they don't want their economy to collapse either. Okay. But uh, terrorists, they're willing to kill themselves and others uh, in order to defeat their enemy. You know, we're the great Satan. And so anything is acceptable in order to destroy us. And, uh, well, who knows who it was? All I know is that something weird going on there on that day, and that is what basically has caused everything else that's resulted since then. The, the collapse has been occurring, but just at a slower pace. If they had kept the money market accounts open for another two hours, that would have been it, which should, that should scare everyone to death and tell you that there's something wrong with this monetary system we have if, if that can happen. You know what? <laughs> now, is it possible just to like wipe out the whole system and start from scratch, or is that just like impossible? Well, I do. We may have to because the, at this point, what we're trying to do with uh, trying to save the system, we're trying to save bankers basically from having to take a loss on their bad investments, and so 
in order to do that, we're throwing away everything else, all of the jobs, all of the real wealth in the United States being uh, thrown away in order to throw money at a, a black hole that can never be filled. You know? Yeah. <laughs> so, yes, we ha- we kind of have to. I don't know how you go about doing that exactly. There's no legal route to it, you know? Yeah, it's, it's going to have to be like the country fucking collapses and then, like, they're like we start over. There's, like, a military coup. Who knows what? Right. You know, I mean, what happens when there is a collapse and the whole world is in chaos? Uh, you know, is who's going to take your house? Do you have to defend your house? Do you stop paying for your house and just try to defend the land that you're that you're on? I'm kind of waiting for that because then I don't have to pay my credit card bills or anything either. You know, you know, I, was I keep wondering. hoping they'll go under first before I do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, I'm the same way. I owe money to all these companies, <laughs> and some of them have uh, don't even exist anymore. They've all been swallowed up. Yeah, I know. And, it's like, what the hell? Why do I have to pay you if you're like, you know, a billion times more in debt than I am? And other people aren't paying anymore. Why am I still paying the minimum balance like every month? Oh, yeah. It's, it's, it's so silly, too. It's like it, it seems I, – I, I don't know. I, I don't cannot believe know. that this has happened. It's like I can't – and that's why a conspiracy theory could even be entertained in this. It's like you can't logically understand why this would be allowed to happen. Not only the uh, bubble getting so big – that it could collapse in the span of four hours of, of uh, money market trading. You know, I can't believe that was allowed to happen. Um, and then the, the uh, remedy that they're trying, it seems to me like at the end of this, um, if everything were to work great the way Barack Obama wants it to, the best case scenario, the nicest thing that could possibly happen is that everything in the United States would be owned either outright by the federal government or by a financial institution that is controlled by the federal government. So, you know, we they already control a large percentage of the economy. Yeah. But um, when they literally own every single home, you know, and because they what's happening right now is they're driving the prices of homes and everything else down and then buying it up and then jacking the price back up. Yeah. So, it's a total fascist takeover of private enterprise in the United States. Yeah. Um, well, I don't even know, I don't know, God. I don't know what to say now. I'm all, <laughs> I'm, all, I'm all freaked out. I know. But you just got to hope you make it through, I guess. You know? I feel like I'm just one grain of sand on a very big beach, and most of the other people are just kind of retarded. So, I mean, you I, know, uh, I know what's I, going on, but... You and I, like, we probably don't have any money. There's, right. There's nothing we can do. It seems like there's nothing we can do. But as for the people out there who may be listening, who may have a few bucks. We're always looking of, for donations. Right. <laughs> yes. Well, no, that's. Oh, that's, really? This, this is what I'm talking about. I'm talking about instead of people giving their money voluntarily to these corporations that are working for the destruction of the United States. How about as much as you possibly can try to hire uh, locals, small businesses, help your friends get their own small businesses going, and let's all trade with each other instead of with them. We have to uh, 
try to get our own system going outside of that existing system. And that's going to happen more naturally as the economy continues to collapse. The black market will uh, become a much larger portion of the economy. And I'm not saying we, we need to start trading drugs or anything, but it's like, you know, as, as the yeah. police state continues, everything will become black market. I live in Washington state right now. They have passed a law that says you can't have uh, phosphates, I think, or something like that in your uh, dishwashing detergent. And so all of the companies here are distributing a special formula of dishwashing detergent that complies with the environmental rules of Washington State, but what everyone's finding is that this dishwashing detergent does not work. And so there's literally people driving to Oregon, driving to Idaho, just to buy a box of dishwasher detergent. Dishwasher detergent is now a black market item here. Imagine if... Oh, so you're like, your laws, garage is like full of it then, I bet. <laughs> I don't have a garage. But uh, <laughs> yeah, it's like things like this are uh, part of the whole agenda for the future. Cap and trade. How could we possibly add like a 20% tax onto every activity on planet Earth? It, they've literally made breathing uh, something that's not illegal, but that you have to pay for every breath of, you know? That, that, that's what's coming down the pike with this carbon tax and cap and trade is it's literally a tax on your breath. And then this money is going into a banking cartel. Whatever gave them the right to sell us our own breath, you know? <laughs> I don't know. I just think it's just, I think it, I'm just, I'm just afraid that it's too late, really. We're going to try and we're going to fight, you know, and, and try and make this thing, you know, try and make our way work here. But I don't know with the, you know, and then diseases and everything else. I feel like it's just part of a whole overall scheme to like wipe out the earth and start from scratch pretty much or to you know that whole population control type idea and they want to bring the population down to like 500 million or something crazy like that and all this sort of like end of the world uh scenarios that people paint yeah well this is one encouraging thing i guess they are not perfect they are not omniscient Clearly, I th I, you may think that a lot of things going on are orchestrated by conspiracies, and, you know, some of that is true, but there's a lot of mistakes going on, too. I think that what's going on now was never planned to be going on exactly the way it is now. Yeah. Obviously, things have gotten out of hand. Someone, someone who would come up with an idea to reduce the population to 500,000 obviously hasn't thought where are the cars they drive going to come from, who's going to produce the food that they eat and the clothes they wear. You can't have society, a global society, with only 500,000 people in it. It was 500 million, but, you know. Oh, 500, yeah. Yeah, it's well, a little still, more workable, but. Still, it's like, <laughs> I don't think these people are thinking it all the way through. They get together in these meetings, Dolderberg and whatever else, and they plot and scheme what they're going to do to everyone else in the world and it's, the thing is that the world is too complicated. Finances are too complicated. Environment is too complicated for them to possibly project the results of what they're doing. Yeah. And so we may feel scared that it's too big for us. Well, remember, the people in Germany thought it was too big for them. And maybe it was. But who knows what would have happened if their people had a little bit more of a spine in the beginning. You know, uh, That's true. That, That's true. Well, the whole thing about well, first they came for this group, first they yeah. came for that group. It's true. You know, right now they're coming for gun owners and pot smokers and, you know, everyone is going to be a thought criminal at some point. And 
Yeah, we, I, I think we need to stand up for ourselves on an individual basis and as much as we can um, try to get together in groups. I know that there's all sorts of – there's no cohesive, you know, movement going on right now. There's like – people who follow Glenn Beck and there's people who Yikes. go to the tea parties and then there's uh, on the left there's all these you know communist groups and, and ecology groups and everything um, but it's you know <laughs> I guess what again I, I keep coming back to it we have to try to do as much as we can for ourselves without relying on these large institutions that are part of the problem so people who have any money that are listening right now, help out your fellow man and not just with charity and giving away, although that's very good too, but um, help your fellow man to become self-sufficient as much as you can. You know, I think it's the only hope is that, that whatever you know, the millionaires that are left that haven't had their wealth completely confiscated need to use their money to try to change things back to, uh, you know, nor not normal, but I don't know. We, we, we got to save our civilization here. And uh, it's going to require us doing business with each other as much as we can instead of the these larger entities that are trying to destroy us. So right. I, um, maybe I should wrap it up there because I've been going on for a long time. But um, right. that's what I think the solution is, if there's going to be any solution at all. The economy's been a little rough, man. Oh, man, just brutal. You know, it's times like these that E-Trade can really help you replan your investments, yep. though. You know, it gives you the tools and research. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Take control. Rise up. Dang. Dude, broken. No, 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 no. What? Stop. What? I can't flex the golden pipes? It's not the venue. It's inspiration. Any place. Fine. <sighs> okay, where was I? I'm on the fly again. You're listening to Banal of America Audio. No, no, I'm just poking at your funny bone. I am quite alarmed. I don't think you realize the danger. Like the people who think it's okay to bring shampoo on an airplane. All right, well, let's let's leave the economy behind for a little while because we've talked about that here for like an hour. And, and uh, let's talk a little bit about some of this other stuff you've researched because uh, I'm sure I'll get some emails from people that are like, economy, why? So <laughs> so, so we'll satisfy those people here and, and talk a little bit about some of this other stuff. And uh, I wanted to ask you about the secret calendar, which is one of the topics discussed in the Merovingian mythos. And uh, for some reason, I'm really interested in calendars and stuff, not just the whole 2012 Mayan calendar thing, but also the moon calendar. Right. I was really in favor of the moon calendar switch. Maybe when, if we ever get to, like, this end of the civilization thing, maybe we can implement a moon calendar once, uh, you know, society's back to ground zero. We'll start from scratch with the moon calendar and a world currency. But but tell me about the secret calendar because uh, I'm very intrigued by that. Well, it is uh, basically the lunar calendar. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I don't know that it's real or not. It's something that I thought I uh, had decoded from some Priory of Zion documents where they were talking about the structure of their own organization. And there's basically a certain number of members in one rank and then a certain number of members in another and they're all multiples of 13 uh -huh. and when i looked at these numbers i realized that it could possibly be alluding to some form of some lunar calendar because uh as you know in a possibly a lunar calendar you might have 364 days instead oh. of 365 and the uh the months would all 
be equal, equal number of days. Oh yeah, with the day um, out of time, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, that's what I was proposing. I was, uh, I was saying that this makes sense that it might be a lunar calendar, and basically you would have a leap year every other year. Interesting. Um, so yeah, if you, if you read that chapter, you'll see what I was proposing. I don't. I mean, this thing is so complex. The the way that our lives are arranged according to the calendar that we all agree to observe, you know, it would obviously be uh, very expensive and complicated to try to switch over to a new calendar. All oh of a sudden. yeah, it's practically it's like the whole metric system thing here in America. Like, <laughs> they just won't switch, even though it makes more sense. But but yeah, wouldn't it be cool if like the uh, first day of the month was always on the same day? And when you pay your rent, you're paying for the same amount of time every single time. You know, um, it seems like it would be a lot fairer. And yeah, yeah. It, but um, one of the things I was um, I was trying to figure out, why would the Priory of Zion be indi indicating such a thing? You know, I was only looking through their own literature and related literature, but just a lot of um, ancient monuments and ancient texts and mm -hmm. uh, just looking at what did they seem to be alluding to regarding um, – I, I was wondering, is it possible that we had this calendar in the past, or is it possible that maybe uh, we could have it in the future? And I, well, re really, I was wondering, is it possible that there would ever be a time that the solar and lunar calendars would sync up? Oh, so you could like, easily make the switch? Yeah, and what I found was that um, that the year is getting gradually shorter. So that we might be, you know, it would be over the course of many, many years, but we might be sort of tending towards that. Another thing I found is that uh, that in the past, our ancestors frequently, such as the Egyptians and the Sumerians, would observe a 360-day calendar with the five extra days at the end were counted as sort of non-days, and they were uh, a time of uh, just festivities. Nice. Um which nicely sort of corresponds with kind of Christmas Day to uh, New Year's Eve here. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so we already sort of cut these days out of the calendar. No one does any business basically during those days, you know. We already observe this. Yeah. Um, but I was thinking, you know, why do they do – what a strange thing. Why would they do that? Well, of course, there's 360 degrees in a circle, and uh, that's um, – the Sumerians invented – geometry and they understood that is it possible that maybe at some point in the past instead of having an elliptical orbit what if we had a circular orbit oh, you know, and what if <laughs> i was wondering is it possible that there was a time when we had 360 days and 360 degrees in the circle and that's how maybe the sumerians came up with that i don't know i'm not a geologist I'm not an astronomer and uh you know maybe i'm completely full of it but what i've found since publishing that and feeling having no confidence whatsoever in my own theory, that's why I put it as an appendix um, to the book, I've found that there's other people now um, agreeing with me. One, there's this one guy named Gary Osborne. He's writing a book right now that's all about that. He, he's found more and more evidence of uh, ancient writings and uh, ancient art and monuments that indicate the same thing. He brings it back to geometry that's so complicated I don't understand but I'm very uh, pleased that there's someone else sort of carrying on with uh, with my theory. And I guess this this theory might have been touched upon in some of his earlier books because he's the co-author of um, The Serpent Grail with uh, Philip Gardner. Okay. 
um, yeah, so there's a, another person's work that people could look to in the future that might uh, help verify some of these things that were completely, you know, speculation. But just I was just looking at uh, some of the, the weird mysteries before me and uh, wondering if maybe it could have been indicating a 360-day uh, calendar in the past and perhaps a, the possibility of a workable 364-day calendar in the future. Yeah, it's weird. The calendar is kind of like the, the how you say, you know, the money is all based on belief and everything. The calendar is kind of the same way in a weird way because no one really understands or knows, like, why February has 28 days and some have 30 and some have 31. You know what I mean? Like, obviously we know and there's some kind of probably some documented history on the Gregorian calendar and everything, but nobody really knows that anymore other than people who look into it. No, no, people don't, you know, think about the meaning of their calendar at all. So many things started to occur to me when I started researching this, one of which is, of course, that uh, our, the names of our months, the last, like, half of the year, the names are all based on numerical concepts that don't meet up with the, the actual month that it is. You know, yeah, October yeah. is not the eighth month. Right. But obviously it was before. You know, I just the, – the calendar is so – Weird. It's supposed to be, of course, uh, related to the cycles of the heavens, but at this point we've had to change it and put little placeholders in so many places that it really doesn't have much of a relation, not as much of a relationship to that as it used to. And so, people, you know, I think the calendar and the, the uh, festivals happening on certain days, that was really a part of ancient man's life. You know, he really sort of understood it in an intrinsic way, even though they did you know, they weren't astronomers, but they sort of understood it, it, it's kind of brought heaven down to earth in a way mm -hmm. for them, you know, um, and we're completely separated from that now. Um, so I think in a lot of really subtle ways, it could be good for our civilization, our society, and uh, for us spiritually to be reconnected with the heavens by uh, understanding how our calendar is, you know, it represents our journey around the sun and not just uh, the federal tax year or something. Yeah. You know? <laughs> um, so anyway, it's something I just explored at that time when I was researching the book. I haven't really touched upon it since. But one, one of the things I did uh, think about when I was um, considering the possibility of a 360-day year and is it possible that things were quite different in the ancient past I started thinking about all of the antediluvian myths of what life was like before. And there's repeatedly this reference to basically a golden age, a time when the gods were on earth and when man lived in peace and harmony. The easiest way to explain it would be just the Garden of Eden story. Yeah. If you read what they're describing in the Garden of Eden, it's totally different than, uh, than the way earth is now. And... You know, I was wondering if maybe this alludes to a catastrophe that happened. Something maybe came through our solar system at some point, and its gravitational pull was enough to mess up the alignments of uh, the planets. I mean, some people think that uh, Earth was part of this larger planet, um, and at some point something smashed into us. Yeah, and that's like and, the asteroid belt type thing. Right, right. So, you know, I I was just considering the possibility that maybe we didn't have a tilted axis, maybe we didn't have uh, our, our our orbit was not 
as elliptical, yeah. and it really resembled more of a, a – I'm thinking that there wouldn't have been seasons even. Interesting. I mean, really, was, our seasons yeah, come that would from make our sense then, yeah. even if there was not a tilted axis, we wouldn't have seasons if we were straight up and down. Yeah. So. Um, Interesting. Wow. It's, you know, yeah. It, again, it's like I'm not at all qualified to, to <laughs> tell you if this is true or not, but it, it seems to be possibly what our, our ancestors were alluding to with some of these myths about the time before and a time when it was much easier to to till the earth. Agriculture was a lot easier. Uh, you can imagine it, it, that uh, if there were no seasons, there would of course be the, the ice, the, the caps, the pole caps would be no man's land. But in the in the center of the earth, uh, I mean in the central band of the earth, it, it would be like basically you know tropical conditions all the time. Yeah. It would it would it would it would be very much like what the Garden of Eden was. So long-winded answer. That's uh, that's what the, the secret calendar was all about. And then I guess bringing it back to the Priory of Zion, I was I was theorizing maybe they know something about this. Maybe this is one of their secrets. Maybe if ancient man knew about this, maybe this is something the secret societies in modern times have uh, you know kept under wraps. So there you go. Oh, I hear some sirens in the background. They're on to you. <laughs> They're coming for me now. Since we're in the celestial realm, uh, you've talked about and you've you know you've written about a ton of different stuff and and a lot of like these secret societies and occult stuff. But I've never heard you talk about the UFO phenomenon, which is of course you know a huge pillar of the paranormal esoteric community. So uh, you know what what do you think of that whole thing? Because you know you're the, earlier we were talking about uh, the Merovingians and Jesus and all that and fallen angels and all that, and a lot of people sort of think that that might be some kind of extraterrestrial thing. So mm-hmm. you know what do you think of that whole thing and 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 how it fits into what's going on? You know, not necessarily with the economy, but just in general with the world today. I think I have realized that that's something I'm not capable of uh, analyzing completely. I mean, when I was younger and I was into conspiracy at you know age 16 mm-hmm. I totally I entertained the idea that you know there were aliens yeah and uh, over the years I've just gotten less interested in that I mean I I've um, talked to so many people who say that they were uh, abductees and stuff and it's just grating to talk to them I'm probably insulting a lot of people right now. Uh, you know, if, if you had your, your little UFO experience, you know, um, I don't know what to do with that unless you have photographs that, you know, cannot be uh, impugned in any way. I'm not interested, <laughs> you know. Yeah, I don't want to hear about your dreams either. I don't know if there are aliens. Um, the, the Nephilim that I'm talking about, the angels... Uh, breeding with mankind and then described in other cultures as gods it could very easily be something like that and i i just don't know i mean it, we're talking about something that's uh definitely greater than human that perhaps the uh human genetics we have now is kind of a result of that hybridization from the descriptions it seems like they did have sort of interdimensional capabilities you know mm-hmm. that uh they they had the ability to like the megaliths of the ancient world. They, a lot of the uh, ancient cultures say that they're built by giants. Yeah, well, like Stonehenge and stuff like that. Yeah, so um, 
I don't know if they were literally giant enough to pick up these stones with their own hands. I think it's more likely that they had some technology uh, that is beyond what we know now. It, maybe it wasn't a machine necessarily, but something that they were li like literally magical powers yeah. uh, that they had. Um, I don't know, but it seems like uh, they're definitely describing beings that, well, would be recognized as angels or gods or aliens today. A lot of people have really specific ideas about what types of aliens there are and what our government's relationship is to them. And that is what I'm saying. I have, you know, I have very little interest in it at this point because it all seems to contradict itself. It seems like the government's hiding something about UFOs, but that could be interpreted in so many different ways. I mean, we know that, you know, every time the government, the military creates some new uh, type of vehicle or any new kind of technology, they always keep it under wraps for a decade or more before they tell us about it. So it's entirely possible that, uh, you know, what has been described as UFOs were uh, military aircraft of some sort. But as far as the abductions go, it, every time I hear these stories, it's very similar to the people that wrote to me to tell me their stories of being uh, mind-controlled sex slaves where it's, you know, it's a subjective experience that they're describing. It's impossible to verify, and it sounds totally insane. Yeah. So that's where I'm at. It's like it's possible that there are aliens and that our government is covering it up. It's kind of, at this point, hard to interpret that in, in the scope of everything else that's happening in the world. What if, I mean, what if you threw aliens into the, into the mix right now? That would be interesting, wouldn't it? Oh, that's for sure. Well, a lot of people seem to think that that's the salvation or something, you know, but, you know, they might just be waiting for, you know, for something that's not going to happen. I have a frightening suspicion that some people do think that or just that that the government's going to reveal the secret about UFOs soon because it'll help save the economy somehow. And it's like, oh, I don't think that's going to happen. Oh, yeah, because um, if there was really, like, free energy or something, then we could have an economy based on that. Right, yeah. I mean, I'm all for that, but at the same time, it's like, that's been teased for so long now that I can't get behind UFO disclosure, really, because, you know, that should have happened, like, in the 60s, and if it hasn't happened yet, there must be some reason why they're not telling us. But who yeah, knows? Yeah, for sure. Um, I used to get so scared thinking about that, you know, um, because I thought that the aliens, whoever they are, they must not be very nice. <laughs> For, um, if they have this greater technology than us and they're collaborating with our government or they're fighting against our government, either way is bad for us. We're going to be in the crossfire. And, and who knows about the intentions of an alien race? Maybe they want to eat us all, you know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think the aliens are probably just like indifferent to people more than anything, though. Just sort of how like we are to insects and stuff. So you think there's aliens? Yeah, probably. I don't know necessarily how many are coming here or the sort of attitude in ufology in the UFO world is something like only 10% of UFO sightings are actually like unidentified flying objects, whatever mm -hmm. those are. And then from mm -hmm. that 10%, I think maybe like 2% is aliens. You know what I mean? Then the rest is like interdimensional stuff, uh, you know, weird stuff, gin, that kind of thing. Not gin the drink, but gin, <laughs> but gin the Islamic myth and all that, or the Islamic tradition and government, secret government projects. And so I think it's a whole myriad of different things, but... Now, I've, I've also considered 
the possibility. I know that uh, a lot of people in government are members of weird little secret societies and cults and things. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, our, the CIA has done a lot of really weird esoteric uh, studies into, like, psychic powers and things like that. Mm-hmm. And so it has occurred to me, what if, you know, some of the people, most powerful people in our government are, like, channeling demons or or what they consider to be gods or aliens? Because I, I know a lot of, the, in the uf, ufology world, there's a lot of people who believe they're channeling aliens. Um, anyway, uh, my point my point is just that um, there could be sort of a spiritual element to this all as well. Uh, if you take into account what are the beliefs of the people in charge. Yeah. I, I don't think there's, like I said, I don't think there's one conspiracy, so I don't think there's one set of beliefs that everyone has. But this is an uh, element of what's going on that we don't know about because we don't they all go to church on Sunday and pretend they're Christians, and who knows what they really think. Yeah, this um, gets into like that whole uh, Franklin cover-up style stuff. Yeah, yeah. Bit. I mean, maybe some of them are Satanists, or um, but more than that, I think you know, really, what if, what if some of them are like getting their directives from some non-corporal entity, like in Nazi Germany before Hitler actually took over, there were all these groups like the Thule Society. Or I guess Tule, yeah, whatever. Why don't um, <laughs> <laughs> that were literally channeling. They believed were Sumerian gods, and the Sumerian gods were telling them how to build flying machines that looked. That they were the Foo Fighters, you know, the, the flying oh, wow, saucers. Yeah. So even though they didn't actually describe them as aliens, it's like they were talking about they're channeling gods that told them to build UFOs. Well. You know, I think I think that uh, here's here's the reason why I don't take a position on whether there are aliens or not is because to me, aliens, gods, angels, interdimensional beings, seem like all descriptions of the same type of thing. Yeah, and absolutely. Yeah. What if there? You know, maybe there are uh, beings on Mars, and uh, if there were Martians and they were interdimensional, would they have a Martian, as in the god Mars? Yeah. They have a Martian, uh, you know, aspect to them. It c- can, is there some way that we can put together how our ancestors viewed their gods and associating them with the planets in many ways with what our own modern conception of aliens is? Um, is I don't know. I, hopefully I'm not being too weird here, but <laughs> that's, that's, I, that's my uh, position, I guess. Yeah, well, we're a paranormal show. You're required to be weird. <laughs> yeah, I guess. I guess what I'm saying is just that uh, it's too in, it's too nebulous an idea to really tackle. I guess is what you're saying. And I think when people call them aliens, they're trying to separate them from more ancient conceptions of what gods and angels were like. And I think it's the same thing. We just feel like we're being more scientific by calling them aliens. It makes it's more comfortable to the modern mind than gods. Yeah. But it's the same thing. And people who worship God now or gods, they think that they're praying to some invisible entity. One of the most interesting interviews I ever did for Dagobert's Revenge was for this guy who was the spokesman for um, a, a monarchist organization that was trying to bring back the monarchy in Scotland, and this, he was the uh, an ambassador for them. 
And I started asking him about aliens because there was some stuff in their literature that sort of indicated they might believe it, that God is an alien. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I basically came out and asked him if God was an alien in their, in their viewpoint. And they believed that their royal bloodline went back to uh, alien gods. And yeah. he just basically said that God has physical and spiritual aspects. And that's where he wanted to leave it. So we conceive of ourselves as praying to invisible entities. And I think in a lot of people's minds, they don't even think that they're real because of that. But, you know, they what if they're physical entities as well? Uh, like in the Bible, um, for instance, there's this thing, there's this scene where Moses is talking to God and he asks to see God. He has to, to actually see his body. And God says, no, you can't handle seeing my face. It would kill you. But I'll allow you to see my back parts. Yeah, I think well, I remember how does, that. Yeah. How does God have back parts? <laughs> you know, so obviously we're talking about a being that wasn't always physically visible by your own eyes, but could be. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, again, another long-winded answer, but it's like, uh, I, I just feel like that we need to have a deeper understanding of our own religion and myths, and then this alien phenomenon of modern times needs to be interpreted in, in, in that context. Because just thinking about aliens coming from another planet and then trying to theorize what would be their motivations towards us is assuming human motivations to them, basically, when we're dealing with something larger than that. We may be dealing with gods. Yeah, absolutely. All right. There you go. Sorry. All right. I'll so I guess the, you're not a big supporter of Bigfoot. You are kind of in Bigfoot country, so what, what, what are you thinking about the Bigfoot? You have just won a million dollars because you are, I don't know, the hundredth person to ask me that. Wow. And weird. No, I don't really have a million dollars to give you. Oh, shit. This is this weird thing that happens to me throughout my entire life. Every single interview I do for anyone, whether it's actually during the interview or during the conversation after the interview, someone always asks me about Bigfoot. Even if I'm there talking about terrorism or economics, somehow the subject comes up. Or if if it's not actually asked of me during my interview i'll watch the thing on television or listen to it on the radio later and in the same show they'll have an expert talking about bigfoot so even though i have absolutely nothing to say about bigfoot <laughs> nothing whatsoever it is this thing that follows me throughout my whole life it's the curse of bigfoot weird it's a yes. sign you need to go after the bigfoot next i'm telling you you'll crack the case i bet Maybe I will. Yes, I'm right here. Uh, if there's any um, yetis or sasquatches, they are they are uh, welcome to come to my door and discuss the matter with me. Nice. So you never see anything weird up there in Oregon? Other, than, I mean, no, obviously, man, it was seen weird stuff. Well, you're in Washington, not Oregon, right? I have had all sorts of paranormal experiences, Tim, but none of them have been random. I have not seen any uh, UFOs and, or, or sasquatches. The only thing that I have experienced that that uh, makes me absolutely certain that there's a paranormal world out there is that I have participated in group activities that resulted in paranormal events occurring. Like a Ouija board situation? Yeah. Whoa. Literally a Ouija board situation or something else that, that you yes. know? Yes. Yes. And uh, that may be uh, 
something I get into in a future conversation, but um, <laughs> I can tell you that it's it was actually it's and I'm not just talking about one experience, but I'm talking about uh, things that have gone on for years. Numer uh, I'm talking about uh, hundreds of pages of transcripts. Whoa. And uh, of things that I and the people in the room couldn't have possibly known that came to, uh, to be true later, and uh, uh, really specific things about ancient history that we later discovered were true. Whoa. Um, you got to be careful. That stuff's dangerous. In, oh, yeah, I know. Well, yeah, that's the other thing we encountered was that the, uh, the things we were talking to, you know, lied. <laughs> they, they mixed truth with lies, just like uh, the Christians warn you about. And so you had to be really careful about, you couldn't take anything at face value. And if they, uh, it, was exa it was just like uh, the exorcist. You know, yeah. <laughs> they were toying with us, but um, at the same time, it was really powerful experiences every single time because it, it um, proved to us the existence of the paranormal and uh, of non-corporal entities, and that is what made me, you know, ever since having those experiences, it makes me think, okay, if these uh, people are actually members of secret societies and performing occult rituals, Maybe they are literally talking to something that's telling them what to do. Oh, absolutely, of, yeah. In, instead of like we were taking it with a grain of salt and being skeptical and checking everything, we could have easily gotten into a conversation with these entities and uh, plotted uh, the domination of the world with them, and they would have told us step by step what to do. You know, we didn't. We chose not to, but it was like at every uh, step of the way, the entities we were talking to kept trying to pull us into, you know, worshiping them or doing things to, uh, just doing their bidding, you know, it's like, I, I have no idea what, uh, what the ultimate result of that would have been, but we didn't, me and my friends, and we just, uh, continued to talk to them to try to get as much information as possible, and at a certain point, it broke down, and, you know, we stopped getting useful information, and then we stopped doing it, Weird. but it was, it, it gave me a way different perspective on ancient texts. I'm pretty much convinced now that, you know, the Bible, um, a lot of the Sumerian texts are, are myths that, that we view as being either fanciful or maybe a garbled historical record. Yeah. Um, I think that a lot of them were written through channeling, basically. Yeah. Interesting. And, you know, in a lot, with a lot of the scriptures, they, they say that. Yeah. But we don't take it seriously. We still, you know, we still consider the authors of the books of the Bible, at least uh, scholars do, consider them to have very deliberately plotted <laughs> the things that they wrote. And um, it may have very well have written, been written sort of as automatic writing. Or, and, you know, also in stories of the Ark of the Covenant, and they had those rituals around the Ark, and they had the Urim and Thummim uh -huh. that com helped them communicate. Like by, it sounded like they were describing these crystals lighting up, uh, different colored crystals lighting up in order to communicate things. Yeah. You know, I just when I was a kid reading that, I just didn't know what context to put that in. It didn't mean anything to me. Uh, now I think about that, and it creeps the hell out of me. <laughs> like that's what the. Uh, the high priests of Israel were doing, because they, they, the Urim and Thummim and the the Ark of the Covenant worked together pretty much the same way as a Ouija board does, and 
later on, many, many years later on, when Joseph Smith was writing the uh, translating, excuse me, the, <laughs> the, the gold plates that didn't actually ever exist. And he he had this, this uh, I think it was a rock, a special peepstone, and he called it the Urim and Thummim. And he put it in the bottom of a hat and looked at it and told his uh, friend who was transcribing for him what the, this is what the gold plates say. You know, that, again, there's a uh, there's a description of channeling. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that is. And there's yeah, there's so many things in the history of esoterica and in, in religion and mythology that once you look at them from this perspective, they take on a whole different meaning. Yeah, because it's like, where's this information coming from? Exactly. And again, yeah, we always assume that there's some reason why people wrote the things the way they did, but maybe the only reason was because that's what the inspiration was telling them to write. That's what the spirit wanted them to write. Right. We don't know the motivations behind that, so. Right. And, and, uh, well, never mind. I could, I could go on and on. Now, I'm going to jump around here a little bit. What happened with this 2006 Pakistani blasphemy thing that happened with you? Uh, I saw that in your bio, and I was like, what? This is crazy. So what what happened there? How would you get in trouble with the Pakistanis? Well, um, we, my husband and I were running a blog at the time that mainly talked about current events and news. And uh, in 2006, as you know, there was a Danish newspaper that published some cartoons of the Prophet Muhammad. Okay, and yeah. They were, they were doing that um, basically as a protest against threats that had been sent to a publisher in Denmark. Who was they were trying to write a children's book about Muhammad, and it was supposed to be, you know, a sympathetic look at Islam and the history of the, the story of the Prophet Muhammad for children, and they wanted it to be illustrated. Well, you're not allowed to draw Muhammad, according to um, their interpretation of Islam. And so they started sending threats to this publisher. And then the newspaper printed their own pictures to, uh, you know, protest that, to say, yes, you can't tell us what to print. You yeah. know? And then the whole thing just uh, exploded at that point. The newspaper started getting threats and people rioting all over the world, oh, yeah, uh, demanding that. that Denmark... Um, curtail the freedom of speech of this of this newspaper so that Muslims wouldn't be offended. Yeah. And it got, at a certain point, there were people in the United Nations and also, amazingly, the heads of Western governments saying, yes, we should censor anything that's offensive to Muslims because it could be a... Uh, you know, a public safety threat. Yeah. And so my, my husband and I, we just uh, we put up the cartoons and stories about the cartoons and obviously sympathetic with the newspaper publishers. And uh, we discovered before too long that um, we were on a list of 12 websites that had been banned by the nation of Pakistan. Wow. We were really excited by that. We, the only reason we found out was because we saw this document on BBC Urdu, and we couldn't read the, the uh, text because it was in Urdu, the uh, one of the languages in Pakistan. Yeah. But we saw the the they had like a screenshot, or they had a, a yeah, they had an image of one of the documents that had been presented before the Supreme Court of Pakistan, and it was blurry. But we, could, but as soon as I saw it, I recognized the URL of my website on it. 
And I'm like, oh, my God. Weird. <laughs> of all the websites, because there were tons of websites throughout the world republishing these cartoons, but we made it on the list of 12. There's, and I was so you know, pleased with that. Around the same time period, our website started getting hacked, and we started getting threats from people overseas. Yeah. And, uh, well, the, the whole thing got picked up by a number of uh, media outlets. On, we were on a local news uh, top story uh, on television, and a local newspaper wrote about it. And then uh, the Washington Post didn't put it in their print edition, but it was on their website. And, uh, I don't know, Michelle Malkin, who's a conservative commentator, yeah. wrote about us. And some other big blogs, Little Green Footballs was really big back then. They wrote about us. And, uh, you know, so it was, it was fun. We got to be in the news for a little while, and I got to uh, make public statements about how, at the time, was a serious issue was that Western governments were considering curtailing free speech about Islam. And this is something that actually has never stopped. It, it has gotten further and further. There's hate speech laws all over Europe and Canada right now, and they're trying to do it here, too, to uh, prevent people from saying anything that could be perceived as negative about Islam. And in the case of these cartoons, a lot of them weren't even saying anything negative about Islam. It was just a picture of Muhammad. And yeah. now we're supposed to observe their religious taboos, you know? That's insane. Yeah. And, uh, so, I mean, I wrote an open letter to Condoleezza Rice because she also, uh, she disgusted me. She made conciliatory remarks and basically told people in America that they should, you know, pipe down about this and shamed us for, for standing up for ourselves. And I was, that really made me angry. George Bush also made similar statements. So at the time, it was just something that I was really passionate about because I was afraid, and I still am afraid, of uh, the influence of radical Islam on the West. And it, you, you might think, oh, uh, the terrorists are against the New World Order, they're against the empire, and so, you know, we don't have to be afraid of them, but it's like they, they want to kill us. And moreover, the New World Order, the uh, the the globalists who are trying to create this this uh, global government, they want us all to get along, so they keep trying to push this uh, these hate crime yeah. laws to try to make uh, every, everyone in the West observe the taboos of Islam. It's not like the globalists have any respect for Islam, quite the opposite, but it's all part of curtailing free speech, and, you know, if you can get people in trouble for saying something bad about Islam, you can easily expand it into others, and they have. This week we're learning that uh, people who say bad things about homosexuals are not allowed to go to England now. Oh, wow. They're on a watch list. You know, and I don't have any problem with homosexuality, but people should be able to say whatever they want to. And the fact that, you know, everyone's now on a watch list, anyone who has a particular opinion that the, the Homeland Security deems right wing, and that can include believing in the Constitution, you know, we're gonna, we are in the works having, uh, hate speech laws passed right now in the United States that would make virtually everything anyone says, uh, in a suspect. And I, I do think that we're headed towards this, you know, 1984 type world where there's such a thing as thought crime and 
<laughs> that uh, you will get punished if you say the wrong things. And you remember in 1984, there was no rule of law. There was no set uh, description of what the rules are that you can and can't violate. And when you go into hate speech laws, that's basically the way it is, too. No one knows what you're allowed to say anymore. It's just all of a sudden you get arrested. Yeah. Or and just so that's like what publicly I'm that's... shamed. Yes. Which is uh, at <laughs> worse almost. Uh, now, I take it from what you're saying here about the terrorists that you're not a big 9 11 uh, truther. What's your take on the whole 9 11 thing? And, and more importantly, in my opinion, I guess, <laughs> obviously I'm interested in what your take is on that, but you're amazingly bright, and I want to know what you think of from a fourth wall take, how you saw this whole thing unfold as far as, you know, here in the esoteric end. Because, you know, I've always been more fascinated, I guess, by just how. With the 9-11 thing, we got to see the birth, the rise, and in my opinion, the fall or the stagnation of a whole new branch of, of the paranormal or the esoteric or the parapolitical, I guess is the proper term to use. Do you know where I'm going with all that? You're talking about the 9-11 truth movement. Exactly. And so, you know, it, it sort of gave us a, an amazing petri dish to watch what happens when a, a strange event unfolds like this and the next thing you know, you know, these groups form and then they, then they fight each other mm. and then, you know, they become complacent. And, am I, you know, that's kind of how I've been watching it unfold. In my opinion, I think just the 9-11 thing is, is passe all of a sudden, ever since the fifth anniversary. Well, maybe it'll pick up steam again in like two years for the 10th anniversary, but leading up to the fifth anniversary, it was like, this thing's gaining momentum. This is amazing. And then ever since, it's been like, don't tase me, bro, and, you know, it's it's gone into a whole different realm where I feel like, you know, maybe the election sort of knocked it off of the primary thing that people were talking about and, and getting excited about, and then they got all worked up about the election. But I don't know. So now I'm rambling. And <laughs> That's okay. But I guess what, what to, to sort of bring it into a finer point, you know, first, what's your take on the 9-11 event, mm-hmm. and then what's your take on the 9-11 truth movement that came out of the event? Well... You know, um, when 9-11 happened, I probably had a lot of the same reactions that the conspiracy theorists had, which is the very first thing. I thought, this is going to bring in, you know, anti-terrorism laws like we've never seen before. I I certainly remember what happened with Oklahoma City and how after that happened, there were all these laws about, you know, identifying potential terrorists and you know, I could see as the towers were falling, I could see our liberties going away mm-hmm. as well. I knew that was going to happen. And then when I saw the buildings collapse, I also thought, gee whiz, that looks very similar to a um, demolition of a building. Yeah. But, you know, when a building collapses, what does it look like? It looks like that. It, by No matter what means, <laughs> I think it looks like that. I think that um, I, I do not believe personally that uh, – this was all done deliberately, plotted by George Bush and Dick Cheney to, for uh, a pretext to invade Iraq or to steal their oil or any of these <laughs> Halliburton, you know, yeah. to, to get uh, contracts for Halliburton. I, I don't think that they deliberately decided to kill 3,000 Americans and plunge the economy into chaos to achieve that end. Um, I think where these conspiracy theories crop up just naturally is because there's there is so much secrecy surrounding that event and and so many 
easily falsified uh, statements um, that, you know, w when it's clear that they're lying to you, you can only speculate about what the truth is. And that's um, what the truth movement has sprung up from is the government's obviously lying and covering up about something. And so people's imagination just runs wild. And you you combine that with the, the onslaught of a police state that just makes the ramps the paranoia up so much higher. So I understand why the 9-11 truth movement started. I personally don't agree with it. And I certainly don't agree with the point of view that has been put forward by, um, I don't know, Alex Jones and several others. Basically, there is no real, there are no real terrorists and they don't really want to hurt us. We're doing it all to ourselves. Um, I think it's more complicated than that. I, from my own experience, I know there really are terrorists. And uh, I think that what it is is there's a lot more going on there. There's obviously a relationship between bin Laden and the CIA. There was in the past. And that could be – there could be more going on there, something that he's really angry about beyond what he's, what he's said publicly. That was his motivation for striking back at our empire. And uh, I think that, you know, obviously the government had to have known what was coming to a certain extent. If they didn't, you know, that's pathetic because uh, you've seen the, the video of Alex Jones uh, predicting 9-11 like two, two oh, months yeah, yeah. before it happened saying they're going to say that bin Laden hit us and it's mm -hmm. going to be the World Trade Center and that's exactly what happened. So, you know... A person just reading the newspaper could have figured out what was going to happen. Right. And there's so, no excuse, really, for the complete failure of intelligence. So would you and, say you fall into, like, the let it happen on purpose camp? No. I'm saying not that they let it happen on purpose, but that they're lying about the extent to which they knew about it. They're trying to cover their own asses. They're trying to cover up all sorts of things about their relationship with al-Qaeda. I do, I do think that there's a, obviously the, the um, intelligence agencies of uh, MI6, Mossad, and CIA, they do business with dirty people all the time. They, they kind of have to. Um, and so, I, you know, I'm not surprised at all to find out that they have relationships with terrorist organizations. They, you know, even if you wanted to see it in the best light, they, they would have to get information from these people. They would have to plant their own, uh, their own agents into these organizations. And for all we know, there's, there could be agents of theirs, um, you know, within our own intelligence organizations. Yeah. It's like <laughs> you, we're in the fog of war, and it's impossible to tell what's real because the government is putting out propaganda. Al-Qaeda is putting out propaganda. Other dissident groups in the United States that just want to destabilize the United States are uh, glomming onto that. And, you know, um, it's it's – it's really impossible to tell what the truth is, but here's what I'm, I'm just saying that we had the biggest uh, national security failure in our history. So it's not really surprising that there's a lot of cover-up surrounding it. Um, I think people are filling in the blank when they theorize that, uh, you know, there wasn't really any planes, that we demolished the buildings ourselves. Yeah, I just I just think that's the imagination run amok because there's not enough information to fill in the gap. 
Um, you're talking about you've seen the demise of the 9-11 truth movement where it hasn't died necessarily, but it's like people aren't as passionate about it. Yeah, complacency not, and, yeah, just, you know. Well, if you recall, Loose Change came out and said there were no planes or that there was a missile on the plane or, I mean, there <laughs> There were so many wild claims in the first version of Loose Change, and by the time – the version that is now the final version is totally different, and they've taken out so many things that have been proven false. You know, there's just – the physics does not stand up to the allegations that were made. Um, so, you know, 9-11 Truth Movement itself has had to back off from a lot of its claims. Yeah, yeah. Um, the only thing that remains is the suspicion that we knew – ahead of time that we're covering up what was really going on and I think that has been going on and the cover-ups have been going on the entire time. One of the things that uh, I think the conspiracy theorists ignore, but this is a real conspiracy that's been going on the entire time, there have been attempts to attack the United States. There have been terrorist attacks within the United States. Nothing on that scale, obviously. But if a guy comes into an airport and shoots people at the El Al counter because he's, you know, believes in the Palestinian cause, that's terrorism. And there, there was a shooting in uh, Seattle. There was a, a case, I don't know, in Michigan or something where a guy was mowing people down with his car. You know, when they ask him later why you do it, they said, he said it was because of uh, the Palestinian cause or uh, that the government that the United States is in Muslim countries. I mean, there's been a number of these cases where it meets the definition of terrorism, the type of terrorism that we were supposedly fighting, and Homeland Security would come out and say, well, that's not really terrorism. Yeah. And also, like, uh, I don't know if you remember when there was power failures, strange power failures going on throughout the United States. Especially, I guess, most of them were on the East Coast. Yeah, yeah, um, like about four years ago or something like that. And I yeah. went out in New York for like uh, like a day or something like that. Yeah, and then there, were, there have been a number of these um, major catastrophes that have happened. And before any investigation could possibly ever be, be done, Homeland Security will come out with a statement within five minutes saying this is not related to terrorism. Yeah, they do that all the time, yeah. And I don't believe them anymore because it's not possible for them to have come to that conclusion within five minutes. So to me, the, the whole during the whole Bush years, I was frustrated because it seemed to me like there were terrorist attacks going on, and they kept covering it up to try to make themselves look good. Like, oh, we haven't had an attack since. See, the Patriot Act is working. Well, what the Patriot Act did, especially when it was uh, reauthorized and rewritten, is it defines all sorts of domestic things like drugs and th things that have nothing to do with terrorism as terrorism. Yeah. Meanwhile, there's, there's these things that are actually terrorism and they're covering it up. So whether this was the intention all along, I don't know, but certainly the result is what we're seeing now, the, the terrorism laws are being used against us. It's a, it's a way of controlling our thoughts and speech instead of trying to get the terrorists which, as far as I can tell, there was never any serious pursuit of. Uh, and not to, I guess, malign all of the um, people in the CIA and the military and the FBI that have been legitimately trying. 
But as far as the administration, the overall goal, I don't get it. I don't know what the point was of all this crap we've been doing over the past few years when they haven't been preventing terrorist attacks. They've been covering up terrorist attacks, and now they call us terrorists. So you like talking about like a reverse cover-up almost. Reverse if we're we're looking at it from the 9-11 truth movement point of view. I don't know. (laughs) Yeah, the the 9-11 truth movement, all I'm saying is that we know from going back to Oklahoma City, there's been this desire on the part of the federal government, this champion at the bit to create this insane police state that we now have and waiting for a major terrorist attack in order to do it. So you can call that a conspiracy. It doesn't necessarily mean that they caused the terrorist attack in order to make that happen, but it does mean that they were ready as soon as it happened to bring all this stuff into place. Yeah. And, you know, it is a, a... the definition of a conspiracy is people conspiring, colluding to break the law. Um, there's uh, also things that are called conspiracies where it's basically people operating in their own self-interest and skirting around the law as much as they can or, or you know, trying to do things in a lawful manner but still doing things for their own benefit to the detriment of uh, the people as a whole. I think there's tons of that going on, you know, cronyism, that that's widespread. Oh yeah, that's the and, government for you. <laughs> but in addition to that, you know, there's there's <clears throat> groups of people with specific agendas and when the the agenda is to remove the constitutional protections that are there to protect our freedoms, then yeah, that's a conspiracy and um treasonous and uh needed at the time to be resisted um at this point you know <laughs> it's like i i can't believe for so many years now we've been living uh without habeas corpus basically but even i and so many other people still sort of thought back then during the bush years well they must be using this against known terrorists <laughs> you know yeah they, even though I didn't agree with the the way they were doing it, like my my personal position about you know torture and uh, having detainees and stuff, it's like um, I don't care as much if we're talking about enemies on the battlefield. But yeah. if we're talking about American citizens taking their rights away, that's that's wrong. And I I can't believe that uh, we've allowed it to happen to to the point where, as you may have heard, two months ago, a 16 year old boy who's you know, white, um, Christian, not any, in any camp of terrorists whatsoever. <laughs> and, uh, was just a homeschooled kid. Um, it, it appears that someone made some bomb threats, uh, using Skype and, uh, they copied his IP address. And so the, the feds came to this house and took this kid away while his, while his parents were out. Oh, they haven't seen him since then. Have you heard what? about this? No, I haven't heard anything about this. I can't figure this out. It was a real news story. It was on the local news. You can watch the video. And yet no one is picking it up yet. We're talking about something that's two months old. Yeah, I've never even heard of this. This is yeah. freaky because, you know, this, that could happen to us, Tracy. I know. Tim, I'm going to show. I'm going to send you this video. I'll you know put a this? link up. I'll, I'll embed it on the uh, page, on the show page for folks to check out. 
Okay, yeah, that'll work. But yeah, it, this is what everyone has said the police state would lead to, and it has. They can come into your home at any time, literally take your child away from you and disappear them, and they have no right to defend themselves or even know the details of what they're being charged with. It, it's com- unbelievable. For some and, parents, that might be a good thing, though. <laughs> To have the desert kid taken away and waterboarded in some secret location. I'll straighten him out. <laughs> no, um, yeah, it's, we laugh, but I mean, oh, I, this, no, is, I know. It's... this is something that it took, you know, finally uh, Prison Planet picked it up and a couple of other, I, I saw that Ron Paul's campaign for liberty had picked it up, but I haven't seen it yet on national news. It's, and I don't know why. Yeah, that's weird. That's freaky. Uh, we'll embed that on the show page so folks can check it out because that, that really freaks me out. It should. Since we're like, you know, heavy-duty radicals, we'll have like the best spots in the internment camps because they'll probably round us up first. So we'll I have, just like, want to be shot in the back of the head. What's I, that? I don't want to go to the camp. Really? Yeah, I'd rather just get shot. Are you for real? That, I, I, could, I, I think I could endure the camp for a while. Depending on how bad it is, you know, it could be like you don't have to work or anything, theoretically. Oh, oh I guess you could be like you'd be like slave labor, you think? Oh yeah, they'll have you like breaking up rocks with a, a pick just to keep you busy. Oh, that's no good. Look, I don't know if you know anyone who's been to prison lately. I had a friend who uh, got locked up for growing marijuana. She went to a, a, a federal prison in California, and they have these people working for six cents an hour to work for the phone company doing uh, 411 calls. Oh, really? Yes. The, the, the prison population is already being used as slave labor, contracted out by the prison to other corporations. Yeah, I know. I, I saw that on Oz. Yeah. I'm not being sarcastic either. I, it, there was like a whole story arc on Oz about that. Okay. So, yeah, well, I guess. Okay. Yeah, there, it's, and it's not because... I'm just saying, they're not going to let us uh, sit idle, you know? They're going to keep us busy somehow. Oh, I thought it was going to be like camp. They say internment (laughs) internment camps, so I thought it would be like there'd be a lake. Canoeing, sure. Sure, arts and crafts, you know, some big softball showdown with the other internment camp. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, maybe it will be. You can just be hopeful. I'm always eternally hopeful. Um we should probably wrap it up here because we've taken up a bunch of your time already, and I really appreciate that. I didn't even know what what we were going to be getting into here. Uh, it definitely turned into a jam session, which was kind of the goal in the first place with this conversation, and just followed all these different threads. I really had a great time talking to you, Tracy. I got to be honest, uh, I just had a blast, and, Good. Me and too. I was nervous going in, like I said, because I'm like, I don't know anything about this Holy Grail and stuff, but we really didn't even touch on that. And uh, we, we managed to plumb the depths of the economy with you, which was amazing and fascinating stuff. And it's great to talk to somebody who knows what's going on here, because most people, like you said, just don't know what's going on with the economy. And before we wrap it up here, <laughs> what's going on with you? What's next for you? I know, like we talked about, you just dropped the new book uh, not too not too long ago. I mean, it came out this year. Uh, mind control sex slaves in the CIA, and I know you said you got a bunch of different projects in the works and stuff, and of course you got the website there, tracyrtwyman.com. You just sound so prolific, and uh, you know I'm interested in what what may be coming up next for you. So, what do you have cooking? 
Well, um, right now I'm running another blog with my husband, and it's taking up a lot of my time. I've got some other book projects that I don't want to get into that uh, that I'm working on, but for the most part, you know, I'm trying to uh, alert people to what's going on and uh, give them reliable information that's not um, polluted with unsubstantiated theories. So. Right now, uh, the website's called libertycappress.com, mm-hmm. and uh, if you go there, you're going to be able to find all sorts of news about basically the collapse of the economy and the impending police state and the resistance movements that are uh, popping up in relation to this. So come to Liberty Cap Press, and you'll, you'll find only real information and then, of course, our opinions about that, but no wild theories about reptilians or anything like that. This is just real information about what's actually going on. LibertyCapPress.com. All right. Sounds good. Yep. I see it here. I just punched it up on my computer. Awesome. So people should check that out for regular stuff from you. And uh, you have books in the works, but they're under wraps right now. Right. Sounds interesting. So what about TracyRTwyman.com? Should people check that out too, or is that sort of just like a hub? It's uh right now it's sitting there. I'm planning on transforming it a little bit. Um but yeah, that's where you could go to just find out if I'm doing anything new. I always an- announce it there if I'm going to be on the, the, a podcast or something like that. I always announce it there and then a, a bunch of my articles are available for free there if you'd like to check them out. I also I used to do a podcast, so there's 12 episodes of my old podcast up there. Yeah, I was just going to ask you about that, uh, that you had a podcast, but you, it's defunct. Yeah, I used to work at a radio station in Pennsylvania, and actually that show was being aired on the uh, AM station on Sunday mornings. Oh, wow. And then I would uh, put it up as a podcast afterwards, so... Almost every episode was actually on the radio, except for two. But um, you think you're better than me? No. I'm just. <laughs> I'm just. If you heard you. what if you heard what they paid me to work at that station, you wouldn't think that. Well, most people pay to get on the radio, it seems nowadays. So I'm not. I'm not surprised. <laughs> All right. So, like I said earlier, Tracy, you're just amazingly bright. I'm completely blown away by just how smart you are and just how with it you are with all this stuff and that you're so young. Like I said, I, I figured just from your amazing work and your strong writing that, that you'd been doing this, you know, that you were like in your 50s and you've been doing this forever. Do you know what I mean? I mean, you just have a you just have a, a weight to, to your stuff that's amazing. And um, I'm just blown away that we're the same age. Uh, <laughs> and I'm excited too because, you know, that's awesome. We've been talking about on the show for a long time about young people and how more young people need to get involved with all the different branches of the esoteric. So to find out that someone so prolific and so strong uh, is also part of this, you know, youth movement, I guess you could say, in, in the esoteric world is, is a great breath of fresh air and awesome news that, that I didn't know going into the interview. So I salute you for that. Thanks. And we definitely got to have you back on the show because I, I get the feeling you and I could talk for – for hours here about all different sorts of stuff, and, and I really enjoyed the way this conversation unfolded because we just completely threw the notes right out the window and, and, and just rolled right into whatever was up next and, and whatever we want to talk about, and I hope the folks at home enjoyed the conversation as much as I did, and I hope you enjoyed it as much as all of us did, and, and uh, we can have you back on the show sometime in the future 
for, uh, you know, all sorts of esoteric discussion. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure to be here. That does it for this week's edition of BOA Audio Season 4. Big, big, super huge thanks to Tracy Twyman for coming on the show and for giving us so much time. You can find out more from Tracy at the website libertycappress.com. All one word, libertycappress.com. Fantastic website for information on the emerging police state, the crumbling economy, and a whole host of other terrifying news. Tracy Twyman is right there on top of it at Liberty Cap Press. Definitely want to check that one out, folks. Moving right along now, it's time for BOA Audio listener feedback, and we've got two emails here, one kind of goofy and funny, and one with a suggestion. So uh, we'll tackle, I guess, the suggestion one first, and it is from someone going only by the letter A. No hometown listed for A. Here's what he has to say. I've caught an episode of your show on a Shoutcast stream. Excellent interview with the dynamic and wonderful Linda Moulton Howe. At the end of your show, though, when you're pumping up the show and website, you should take a few times to actually spell out banal when you describe the site. I was interested in visiting, but thought it was spelled B-A-N-A-L. My apologies, but not such a huge deductive leap, you'll have to admit. Maybe you actually do this a lot, and I'm only catching a single vague snippet of your show. Anyways, spell out that site. Get your due from your devoted listeners. Signed, A. You know, A, as I think back, we may have done the spelling of the site during Season 1, but I think I dropped it uh, over the years here as the show has progressed. But, obviously, I got this email before we came back last week with Jason Offit, and it actually kind of rung a bell to me that, you know, I should be spelling out the name of the website for folks. So, as you'll notice here during the program when we do a Banal of America shout-out, I will try and make a point of spelling out the website name, B-I-N-N-A-L-L-O-F-America.com. We don't want folks to be confused. I do sometimes get the B-A-N-A-L joke quite a bit, actually. And it is kind of ironic, since we're dealing with such far-out stuff, that my name does sound like the word, which means, you know, run-of-the-mill. So it's kind of a a weird oxymoronic thing, but the name is Benal, B-I-N-N-A-L-L, the website BenalofAmerica.com. For all those folks who've been wondering how to spell it or where to get to it, just punch that into your web browser or Google, and you'll be able to find me pretty easily. Thanks for the suggestion, A. I appreciate it. Always enjoy the listeners who are keeping me on my toes to make sure we're doing the best we can here to get the word out on the program. Up next is a funny little email that made me kind of laugh, and I figured I'd include it here in the program. It's from someone by the name of Rather Sideways, and it comes via the usofe.com, the official BOA forum. Here's what he has to say. After listening to some of the other offerings on Black Vault, I must say that you get the most out of your guests. You are kind of like the slightly stoned Terry Gross of Esoterica, in my opinion. Thanks for your efforts. Keep them coming. From Rather Sideways. I really don't even know who Terry Gross is, and (laughs) I have no reaction to the slightly stoned part. We'll just leave it at that, and you can do your own deductive reasoning, folks, on... uh, (laughs) on the slightly stoned Terry Gross aspect. But thank you for writing in Rather Sideways. Gave me a chuckle when I first read it. Made me laugh here again 
as I read it for the program. The slightly stoned Terry Gross of Esoterica. Maybe that should be our tagline as we go into the remainder of Season 4 and Season 5. Those are the emails from Rather Sideways and A. Thank you very much for writing in, folks. Keeping it pithy, which I appreciate, especially at this late hour as we push to get the episode out to folks. More emails next week, as always. I've got tons of them to feature here at the end of the program. We're always looking for more correspondence from the listeners. Actually, we got a ton of emails from people who listened to the end of the program last week talking about the smoking thing. So many people saying... Been all, what the fuck, what's wrong with you, stop smoking, get your head out of your ass, all that stuff. I totally agree, I'm working on it folks, I got an amazing stop smoking tip from someone this past week, and I'm going to give it a try here over the next few weeks, maybe we'll make it a part of the BOA Twitter account, talking about my new quest to quit smoking, but I'm really making it a goal of my own here personally to have ceased smoking by the start of BOA Audio Season 5. So that'll give me the whole summer of downtime to, uh, you know, wrap my head around that and really make a serious effort to quit smoking. It's definitely something I've wanted to do for a long time. And I've just gotten so many emails from people after the end of last week's episode. It was really humbling. So I really thank all those folks for writing in. I appreciate your support and your wishes for me to, you know, straighten my life out. <laughs> I appreciate that more than you can even imagine. So stay tuned here. We'll keep you posted at the end of the program and on the Twitter feed as to my smoking cessation quest, I guess you could say. Anyway, if you would like to be a part of BOA Audio listener feedback, there are a myriad of ways to do it, but here are the three big ones. You can write to boaaudio at hotmail.com. You can go to BenAllOfAmerica.com and click the contact button. And the third way is you can join up at the official BOA forum, theusofe.com, www.theusofe.com. Great group of folks there talking about all things esoteric and non-esoteric, like the NBA playoffs, the baseball season, and all the summer movie offerings and the crap that gets shoved onto the TV here during the summertime. A lot of lowbrow filth that we all kind of enjoy on the forum and enjoy talking about. So definitely pop on over to the forum, lots to talk about there, and we love having newcomers join up at our little community. Those are the three methods, email, website, forum, any of those puts your correspondence into my hands. I throw it into the mailbag, then I cover my eyes and dig through it and pull out a couple emails for the program at the end of each episode. Hopefully we can get to all the great folks who wrote in, and if I haven't written back to you yet, just hold tight. I will get back to you soon. Thankfully, my schedule has cleared up quite a bit after Tuesday evening, and uh, we'll be able to get things really tight here for the program uh, as the next few weeks progress. Time now, of course, for the thanks portion of the show. You know them, you love them. They are the infamous and esteemed BOA staff. Let me run down the list. Leslie, Chiron, R. Lee, Joe V, Tina Senna, Rochelle Hawks, Richard Thomas, Lasha Siniuk, and A.M. Murphy. As suggested by the listener email last week, here's a little snippet of what they were talking about at BOA this past week. Leslie posted a very intriguing column via her weekly missive, Gray Matters. This week was titled Chemtrails and Radar, all about the 
Interesting connection between chemtrails and radar, obviously. Check that out if you're a big chemtrails fan. A.M. Murphy posted her second column ever for BOA, a very fascinating piece called Perilous Objects and Ghostly Handprints, Women in Esoterica. A very thought-provoking piece on the role of women in esoterica. Definitely one you want to check out. I highly recommend that one as well. Those are the two big columns we posted at BOA. We're hoping to have a full slate for you this coming week as well. Stay tuned for that. As we say, week in and week out, if you're only listening to Been All of America Audio and you're not reading the columns at BOA, you're only getting half the story. BenAllOfAmerica.com, B-I-N-N-A-L-L of America.com. Make it a part of your everyday search for esoteric news and opinion. Following the logical progression of segments here at the end of the program, you know what it is time for now. It is donation time, my friends. You heard Tracy Twyman. She said for you all to donate to me, so I don't know what I have to say here. I'm just joking, of course. We need donations. We are wrapping up the season, as you'll hear in the preview part for next week's episode. Uh, This past week, I just taped a massive international episode. And I'm sure the bill for that one is going to be quite gruesome. And we could always use a little financial help here as we try and produce the best esoteric audio we can for you. I know a lot of folks are having a hard time right now. As we've been saying throughout Season 4, I don't want those folks to make donations. Hold on to your money. Save it. Spend it on things that you need. Things will improve. Trust me, my friends. Things are going to get better And I want you to be able to uh, donate to us when things improve for you. But for the folks who are doing pretty good, who have money that they can spare, we would definitely appreciate a donation from you fine folks out there. How can you make a donation? That is really simple, thanks to the great folks at PayPal. You just go to banalofamerica.com and click the PayPal button. They'll walk you through the process. No donation is too small. All donations go towards Banal of America and BOA Audio. And the goal is to keep us up and running and freely available for all of our great listeners and readers the world over. You just heard me tease it, but let me get right into the preview for next week's episode. I am totally thrilled with what we're going to be rolling out to you folks next week. First of all, we're going to try and get it to you a little earlier than Tuesday. I apologize for the myriad of delays so far here as we've gotten back up and running here for Season 4. But as I noted, we have a huge gap here in our schedule this coming week, and I'm going to hunker down and edit a ton of the material that we've been sitting on over the last few weeks and hopefully won't be coming at you too late anymore in the week. Nonetheless, here is the preview for next week's episode. Serious hardcore listeners who do listen to the end of the program here may remember Claus Hager's email from a few weeks before the spring break suggesting a Swedish ufology episode. Well, next week you're going to hear that Swedish ufology episode. We're going to go global once again as we welcome Claus Svahn, head of UFO Sweden, for his first ever American radio interview. Trust me, my friends, I cannot put over this interview enough. It was amazing. First of all, UFO Sweden, they're not some Johnny-come-lately organization. They were formed in 1970 in Sweden, and they've been delving into the UFO question over there for nearly the last 40 years. Claus is, as I said, the head of UFO Sweden. He's been the head of the organization since 1991. This guy is a hardcore, serious UFO researcher 
with a tremendous grasp on the role of the UFO phenomenon in Sweden. During our two-hour-plus conversation, we're going to be discussing in amazing detail the world of Swedish ufology. We're going to find out about some of the key UFO cases in Sweden's rich history, such as the 1808 mass UFO sighting, the 1933 phantom lights flap, the famous Gusta Carlsson case, the ghost lights of 1946, the 1958 Dumsten close encounter case, the highly intriguing Project Argus of the 1970s, the 1984 Minsk case, the 1999 UFO crash in Sweden, and many, many other well-known cases over there in Sweden. Some of these I'm sure the BOA Audio listeners have never heard of before, but they are very intriguing, especially in light of Claus's awesome research of these cases. You're going to be blown away by what Claus has uncovered about a number of these UFO events. He's also going to give us his first-hand perspective on the birth and evolution of UFO studies in Sweden, including how Sweden was a major player in the very early days of the modern UFO phenomenon. Many people don't know that, but UFOs in Sweden have been going on, as we just said here, at least since 1808. That's the first documented UFO sighting that we know of for sure in Sweden. That's over 200 years of history for UFOs in that country, and Claus is going to talk all about that with us. We're also going to find out about the usual tenets we discuss here with the international UFO episodes, the reaction of the Swedish military and government to the phenomenon, how the media coverage of UFOs has changed over the years, and what the everyday Swede thinks of UFOs. I know I am the master of hyperbole here, on the program, but I can honestly say, no lie, that of the many international editions of BOA Audio, this one will surely rank among the very best. Claus Spawn showcases the world of UFOs in Sweden, a country whose contributions to the history of ufology have been all too often overlooked. This will be a can't-miss edition of the program for any serious student of UFOs. Tune in next week, Claus Spawn his first ever American radio interview, only on Banal of America Audio. And on that note, we close the book on this week's edition of the program. Big, big thanks once again to Tracy Twyman for coming on the show, and of course, huge thanks to the amazing BOA listeners. You guys are the force behind the BOA franchise. Until next time, this is Tim Banal, thanking you for listening, and signing off.